0: welcome back to Pick Six Movies, where each season, myself, Bo Ransdell, and one of my oldest and best friends, Chad Cooper, pick six different movies that fall under one common theme. We try to give you a little insight behind how, when, where, and why each movie was made. And on top of that, at no extra charge, you get a full review of the movie from both of us. Season 2 is entitled, Live from New York, and this is episode 1. This season we're going to look at films based on that television mainstay, Saturday Night Live. All the offshoots and weird characters that somehow found their way into their own films. So anyway, let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls... Children of all ages. Live from New York. It's 1993's Wayne's World 2. On April 22nd,
1: 1978, Jake and Elwood Blues made their debut on Saturday Night Live, performing the song "Soul Man" to open the show. Founding SNL cast member John Belushi portrayed Joliet. Jake Blues, and Dan Aykroyd stood alongside him as his brother, Elwood Blues. Their high-energy act grew out of a love for the Blues that was held by both Aykroyd and Belushi, and it was heavily influenced by the soul duo Sam and Dave, who had originally had a hit with the song Soul Man. The Blues Brothers appeared that night as they would always appear, clad in signature all-black suits, matching black ties, black hats, and ever-present dark Black Sunglasses. Unlike any other act on Saturday Night Live at that time, the Blues Brothers found a life beyond the small screen of late-night weekend television sketch comedy. In November of that same year, the Blues Brothers released their first album titled Briefcase Full of Blues, and by December, they were the opening act for the Grateful Dead. The liner notes for their debut album provided more background to Jake and Elwood detailing how they grew up in a Roman Catholic orphanage in Illinois and explain how they learned the blues from a janitor named Curtis. This backstory added to the mystique of Jake and Elwood. With continued growth in popularity outside of television, the creation of The Blues Brothers led to the first feature film based on Saturday Night Live characters. The self-titled movie The Blues Brothers was released in 1980 and it was directed by John Landis. Now, two years earlier, Landis and Belushi had teamed up for the wildly successful National Lampoon's Animal House. The success of this film, combined with the growing popularity of Jake and Elwood, helped to get the Blues Brothers movie into production. The Blues Brothers movie is essentially a road trip comedy wrapped inside a soul and blues music spectacular. The movie has incredible car stunts, phenomenal musical numbers, high energy dancing, and a mission from Gad. The movie included an unbelievable lineup of musical talent from Aretha Franklin to James Brown, Ray Charles, John Lee Hooker, and a finale that is helmed by the great Cab Calloway. The movie also features cameos of 1980s entertainment royalty, including Carrie Fisher, John Candy, Frank Oz, Paul Rubens, Joe Walsh, Mr. T, Steven Spielberg, and if you look closely, you can see a young James Avery before he became the uncle to the fresh prince of bel-air. Ultimately, The Blues Brothers movie grossed $57 million in the United States and another 58 million overseas. It was the 10th highest-grossing movie for 1980. And when it was released, it came in second at the box office right behind The Empire Strikes Back, meaning that Frank Oz was featured in both the number 1 movie as the voice of Master Yoda and the number 2 movie in The Blues Brothers as a corrections officer both at the same time. How many puppeteers can make that claim? Despite mixed reviews, the Blues Brothers movie was, by almost every account, a success. However, it would be almost 12 more years before characters from the late-night sketch comedy show would return to the silver screen and ultimately surpass the success of Jake and Elwood Blues. On February 18, 1989, Wayne's World debuted on Saturday Night Live featuring Mike Myers as Wayne Campbell and Dana Carvey as Garth Algar. The sketch did not start the show, but instead was the last sketch of the night, in an episode hosted by Leslie Nielsen of the Naked Gun Movies Spain. Despite being the last bit of comedy featured that night, the sketch and its two fictitious hosts were instant pop culture icons. The premise of Wayne's World was always the same. It was a talk show hosted by Wayne Campbell and his sidekick, Garth. It took place in the basement of Wayne's parents' home and was broadcast on public access television in Aurora, Illinois. And that was pretty much it. Now, for younger listeners, public access television was like YouTube, but not on the internet. Anybody could get a show and broadcast it within a small geographic region. And when I say anybody, I mean anybody. Now, usually it was civic-based shows or religious-themed programmings, but every now and again, depending where you lived you'd get a show like Wayne's World in the real world. And sometimes it got weird, long before the internet made things really weird. Wayne's World always began with the same recognizable guitar riff and the host screaming, Wayne's World, Wayne's World, party time, excellent. Formal introductions of the host were always met with a party on Wayne, which was then responded to with a party on Garth. And then the two would discuss music or babes or scream at the camera as it zoomed in and out at high rates of speed, Their show guests would be people from their school or maybe their family or just around the neighborhood. They oftentimes would use some verbal gymnastics to trick their guests into saying something that was borderline profane but clean enough to get on broadcast television. This would send Garth into spasmic fits due to uncontrollable, self-contained laughter. The show also featured dream sequences fading in and out of pre-taped segments outside of the basement. And it was, at least at the time, very funny. As Saturday Night Live could attract A-list actors, athletes, and musicians, Wayne's World had a who's who of guests in the basement, including Wayne Gretzky, Madonna, Tom Hanks, Aerosmith. Wayne's World was as big as an SNL character could get. However, the character of Wayne Campbell wasn't wholly original to Saturday Night Live. Mike Myers brought the character of Wayne Campbell by way of a CBC variety show called It's Only Rock and Roll, where the character appeared on segments called Wayne's Power Minute. Myers based the long-haired, easy-talking, ever-casual hero on the older kids that he saw growing up in Scarborough, Ontario. And Wayne Campbell wasn't Myers' only successful character on Saturday Night Live. Myers was a versatile performer on the program and had numerous other reoccurring characters on the sketch comedy show. These included a precocious child named Simon that hosted a talk show of sorts from his bathtub and shared his rings, and constantly was wondering if people were trying to sneak a peek at his twig and berries. He played Linda Richmond as the host of Coffee Talk, a character based on Myers' former mother-in-law, who shared the same name. Myers played Dieter, the host of a West German talk show called Sprockets, on which he implored every guest to touch his live monkey and ends every show with spastic dancing. Myers leveraged the talk show theme premise a lot for his sketches, but none was as big as Wayne Campbell and his ever-present sidekick, Garth. Dana Carvey played Garth and was asked to join Myers as Wayne's best friend and sketch co-host. Carvey, it should be noted, was one of the most versatile and popular characters on Saturday Night Live. He impersonated President George Bush, that's the President Bush who threw up on the Prime Minister of Japan and not the axis of evil, heck of a job brownie. President Bush. Carvey's impersonation of Bush, number one, helped to create a public caricature of the president that really took on a life of its own. Carvey's impression introduced catchphrases and mannerisms that people associated with President Bush that oftentimes he never really said or did. Carvey had a string of reoccurring original characters, including the Church Lady. He was half of the Arnold Schwarzenegger-inspired bodybuilding duo Hans and Franz. And a personal favorite of mine, the grumpy old man, made numerous appearances on Weekend Update. Carvey had a real gift for impressions beyond President George Bush. Again, it's the one who hated broccoli and on his 90th birthday skydived out of a plane and not the one that Kanye West said didn't care about black people while standing alongside Mike Myers in a televised fundraiser for victims of Hurricane Katrina. Where was I? Oh, Oh, yeah. Carvey has a real gift at comedic impressions and finds one small personal affect and amplifies it wrapped inside a joke. His impressions included Tom Brokaw, Jimmy Stewart, Paul McCartney, just to name a few. And Carvey was as good as it gets when it comes to being a great performer on Saturday Night Live. Now, when it came to Wayne's world, Carvey said that the only direction that Mike Myers gave him before their first sketch was that Garth loves Wayne. Carvey took the character beyond a nerdy, loyal sidekick into a shy master of engineering who is also an amazing drummer. He based much of this on his older brother Brad, an accomplished engineer who helped develop hardware for a video editing software called Video Toaster. Carvey said that whenever his parents would marvel at something his brother did, he would just smile quietly and say thanks. This was the inspiration for Garth's signature tight-lipped facial expression. This awkward jaw adjustment caused Carvey to unexpectedly suffer from continual sore jaw muscles after he had played Garth for an extended period of time. Wayne's World had an immediate impact on the American lexicon. To use the word not at the end of a sentence was a standard joke on Wayne's World. Schwing, party on, hurl, excellent were all liberally used to emphasize a point or to respond in kind. For many, the phrase, that's what she said, is attributed to Michael Scott from The Office. However, I believe that he lifted it from Wayne's World, which most likely lifted it from somewhere else. The duo would often create variations of a word, such as babe, that would evolve into new words like babelicious, robo-babe, baby-a-majora, Abraham lincoln etc. You you get the point. And the public loved these two goofy, ever-happy, rock-and-roll worshipping basement dwellers. And with Myers and Carby... Two of the most popular cast members on saturday night live performing as two of the most popular characters on saturday night live the decision was made for wayne and garth to follow in the footsteps of jake and elwood and make the jump from the small screen to the big screen the plot of the original wayne's world movie was pretty simple Our heroes are approached to take their show to the next level, unscrupulous behavior goes down, and our heroes come out on top. Rob Lowe was cast to play the part of the dubious producer. Lowe was coming off of a sex tape scandal, including an underage girl, and this was an opportunity for him to be in a movie where he was wearing his pants and not committing a potential sex crime. Lowe's character offers to take Wayne's World to a larger audience with money provided by an advertising sponsor. This advertising sponsor was played by none other than SNL alumni Brian Doyle Murray. Murray wrote the screenplay for Caddyshack, among other things. He's remembered every Christmas as the bonus hoarding boss in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And for some of you, he's probably most recognizable as the voice of the Flying Dutchman on SpongeBob SquarePants. The movie also has a love interest for Wayne named Cassandra, played by Tia Carrere. Carrere had a musical and acting career, mostly in television prior to being cast in Wayne's World, and in the movie she performs all of her own songs. Later in her career, she appeared in True Lies and did voice work for animated movies, most notably as Lilo's older sister in Disney's Lilo and Stitch. With all of our principal players in place, let's get to the plot of Wayne's World. Wayne and Garth agree to partner with Rob Lowe on a more professional version of Wayne's World. The basement is reproduced on a soundstage and they get advertising sponsors to pay the bills because that's how television works. Rob Lowe makes kind of sort of moves on Wayne's girlfriend, who Wayne has known maybe a week. Wayne gets upset, and then he has a cop buddy finger probe Roblo's asshole on the side of the road during a standard traffic stop. Wayne helps his girlfriend get a record contract from a producer named Mr. Big, and for some reason I can't explain why that's going on. There's a couple of B-plots surrounding Wayne's girlfriend Stacy, who's played by Twin Peaks own Laura Flynn Boyle. Garth courts a donut shop waitress, who's played by Donna Dixon, who is the real-life wife of Dan Aykroyd. The music producer, Mr. Big, who gives Cassandra her contract, is played by Frank DeLeo, who had done some acting, but he was better known as Michael Jackson's manager. Now, throughout the movie, Wayne and Garth break the fourth wall and talk directly into the camera, and Myers constantly mugs for laughs. Alice Cooper makes an appearance, as does Robert Patrick, reprising his role as the T-1000 from Terminator 2. Chris Farley has his big screen debut. Meatloaf shows up as it is the pain-relief medicine nuprin. The movie featured a revival of Queen's bohemian rhapsody in what is perhaps the most memorable scene of the movie where Wayne, Garth, and two friends ride around Aurora in the Mirthmobile, a 1976 AMC pacer, with flames painted on the sides blasting the Queen rock anthem. Myers reportedly threatened to walk out on the movie when producers wanted to use a Guns N' Roses song in place of the Queen classic. The executives relented, and now everybody headbangs when listening to Bohemian Rhapsody. This was one of the many incidents that Brandon Myers is difficult to work with during the filming of the movie, especially when it came to the film's director. Wayne's World was directed by Penelope Spheris who knew Lauren Michaels, the man who created Saturday Night Live, and was the producer on the film. Spears created short films with Albert Brooks in the 1970s that were featured on Saturday Night Live, and at the time, she was best known for the L.A. punk rock documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization. Her knowledge of the music world and ability to work fast made her a good fit for the director's chair. However, Spheres stated publicly that she and Myers had creative differences of opinion when it came to the filming of the movie. Spheres told Entertainment Weekly that Myers was, quote, emotionally needy and got more difficult as the shoot went along. She reportedly said that in one instance, Myers stormed off the set over a matter of bagel toppings. Myers and Spheres argued over the final cut of the film, which ultimately led to Spheres not returning to direct the movie's sequel. Myers and Carvey were reportedly never close to begin with as well. This relationship became more strained in the future with the creation of Myers' character Dr. Evil in the Austin Powers movies. Carvey felt it was his impersonation of Saturday Night Live creator Lorne Michaels that was the uncredited source for Myers' portrayal of Dr. Evil. Carvey has stated publicly that he has since let bygones be bygones, but you know how that kind of thing goes. Wayne's World opened February 14, 1992 and was number one at the box office. The movie beat out Medicine Man starring Sean Connery, Fried Green Tomatoes, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, and the Richard Gere Kim Basinger thriller Final Analysis. Wayne's World cost about $20 million to make and it brought in over $120 million in domestic box office ticket sales. This led producer Lauren Michaels to see if there were any other hidden gems hiding among his stable of Saturday Night Live characters. Starting with a feature film based on the Coneheads family, Saturday Night Live movies began to pop up in rapid succession, including a sequel to Wayne's World that was aptly titled Wayne's World 2. Meyer's original script for Wayne's World 2 focused on Wayne and Garth succeeding from the United States after discovering an ancient scroll. This plot was based on a story taken from a 1949 British World War II comedy called Passport to Pimlico. The plot of this comedy is essentially that an accidental explosion of an undetonated German bomb left over from World War II unearths a cellar that contains riches and previously unknown royal charter from King Edward IV that cedes the surrounding land to the last Duke of Burgundy. Since the charter has never been rescinded, the London district of Pimlico is no longer subject to British law including post-war rationing and pub closure hours. Glug glug. Perhaps in this original idea for Wayne's World 2, we would see Wayne and Garth flush with cash and absent of any local, state, or federal laws, residing in their own land. A a Wayne's land. Perhaps a Wayne's world. That sounds like a pretty funny premise. Now why didn't you ever get to see that movie? Reportedly, this version was well into pre-production before it came to light that the studio had no idea what the script was about and didn't have the rights to the original source material and so production stopped immediately. Paramount Studio Executive Sherry Lansing was reportedly furious with Myers. She threatened to ruin his life and his career. The Hollywood Reporter's Stephen Galloway wrote Leading Lady, a biography of Studio Executive Sherry Lansing. In the book, he writes that Lansing threatened Myers and told him, As I'm sitting here with you, there is a team figuring out how they can take every single thing away from you. Lansing then reportedly said, If I were you, Mike... I go to Lauren's office right now and stay there until you come up with a new script. We'll slide food under the door. Mike Myers believed it so much that he reportedly ended up in the fetal position on Lansing's couch. Myers eventually took Lansing up on the offer he couldn't refuse and banged out a script that is really just a continuation of the first movie and in many ways a copy of the first movie. It has the same characters, the same lack of plot, Garth is back, Cassandra's back, Christopher Walken takes Rob Lowe's place as the bad guy, Steven Sergik took over in the director's chair, but otherwise, it's more or less kind of the same movie. Wayne's World 2 opened December 10th, 1993, a little less than two years after the original. The sequel was expected to perform as well at the box office as the original, but it didn't. It brought in $48 million domestically on a $40 million budget far below the original's $120 million take. Now, it did open at number one at the box office, dethroning the previous top spot holder, Mrs. Doubtfire, and pushing the Whoopi Goldberg singing nun flick Sister Act 2 back in the habit to third place in the box office rankings. Despite opening at number one, Wayne's World slowly dropped in the box office ranking over the holiday season with some stiff competition from the Pelican Brief and Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List. Although I think the Venn diagram of people that saw Wayne's World 2 in the theater and Schindler's List in the theater resembles a number 8 that fell over on its side. Despite Wayne's World 2 not performing as well as its predecessor at the box office, the wheels were set in motion for a string of movies based on Saturday Night Live characters. The first Wayne's World ushered in a decade where nine, yes, nine Saturday Night Live character themed movies would hit the big screen. Which brings us to this season of Pick Six Movies, live from New York, where we will be exploring six Saturday Night Live-inspired movies to better understand each film, the writers, the actors, and ultimately the characters themselves from the most successful and longest-running sketch comedy show ever on American television. Are any of these movies any good? Do they hold up over time? Should you watch any of these that you may have missed during the 1990s? Well, join us over the next six episodes, and we will try to sort this all out. So what do you say we start off this season with a great big number two? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Wayne's World 2. Welcome to Season 2 of Pick 6 Movies, live from New York, where we are going to be examining six motion pictures that are all based on characters from the Emmy Award-winning program Saturday Night Live. I am Chad Cooper, along with my co-host, Bo Ransdell.
0: Hello, everyone.
1: And tonight's episode, as the introduction uh, led up to, is going to be Wayne's World 2. You know, as noted in the opening, you know, there were some some troubles uh surrounding the script of this film. But, you know, the biggest problem, in my opinion, is that it's really just a retread of the first movie. It reminded me of, you know, maybe like Home Alone 2 or Hangover 2, where as you watch the film, it's kind of beat for beat, note for note, just a carbon copy of what we saw the first go round.
0: Yeah. Without all the comedy and energy. Yes. I think that's the big problem here. Is not so much that it's a rip off of the first one; it's that it's a flaccid, unfunny rip off of the first one.
1: You know, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, a great, a great sequel gives the audience, you know, everything they loved in the first movie, just in a totally different way. I mean, there, there are examples in, in my opinion: uh, Lethal Weapon Two, uh, the second Guardians of the Galaxy, The Godfather Two. Th- they all embrace what was good about the first film, and just provide it, you know, a second helping of that.
0: Yeah, it's the analyze that theorem, I think, is what they refer to it as in Hollywood. I don't think anyone refers to it as the analyze that <laughs> theorem. <laughs> you know, you're, you're right. This should be pretty easy. But obviously, your intro points out that this was sort of slapped together after the original idea didn't come together. And that's what makes it more interesting, I suppose, but it doesn't make the movie any better. At, at the end of the day, I felt like Wayne's World 2 was this mishmash of lazy ideas. And and as you know, we'll get into, callbacks to the original film, that just... It, it's the same effect as when uh, horror movies put Night of the Living Dead on television in their movies because it's a uh, a public domain film. A lot of shitty horror films will do this to, you know, show their characters watching a scary movie, but the danger in that is that Night of the Living Dead is legitimately a great movie. And if you put it in a like if Night of the Living Dead is the burrito and the tortilla around it is just a bunch of unwatchable garbage, then all it does is make you want to watch Night of the Living Dead. The end to that very long tail on that kite is every, every moment of watching Wayne's World 2, I was reminded of how much I would rather be watching Wayne's World.
1: Could I make a movie called Chad's Scary Movie and just set a camera up? filming night of the living dead and then release that as a motion picture yes people would come see it
0: yes yeah it's public domain you can do whatever the fuck you want with it you can re-edit it as a comedy Hmm. yeah i've tried it's it's harder than you think (laughs) it turns out that movie is is, gets pretty grim towards (laughs) the end
1: so let's jump into this one. Uh, as always, our movie opens with uh, uh Edgar Winters' group, Frankenstein. So we get a sure. I've never done. I've never done that before. It, that, that, um, and how we, we feel. It felt great. It does, Um, and we hear you know a signature extreme close up, you know, from inside the new home that is the set of Wayne's World. And so, you know, we get through some sort of exposition of of Wayne telling us that we're on the new set. It's located in this abandoned Acme Doll Factory. Garth uh, tells us that he feels sorry for anybody that still uh, lives in their parents' basement, which. Uh, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna save that thought. For some reason, they have accurately recreated the basement from Wayne's parents' house in the abandoned warehouse, and it looks the same, but not exactly. And it reminded me of when, remember when, uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, like rebuilt the Playhouse and everything looked the same, but it was kind of, weird and different. It was just sort of this like odd imitation of the original.
0: Yeah. It's also in, in that vein, there was the replacement of Darren's in Bewitched with a similar, but not quite exact guy. All right. So here's a couple of problems with this whole situation. One, uh, you're doing the show and you make a crack about it being in an abandoned doll factory, which doesn't matter ever in this movie. But it feels like it kind of should. It feels like there was a joke there that nobody bothered to go
1: get. Did you notice that behind Wayne when they're doing the show, there are three very dark brown naked baby dolls and a Ronald McDonald stuffed doll? And I'm not sure who the set designer was on this film, but I couldn't tell if this was meant to be creepy or funny. But it kind of fails
0: on both points, right? Uh, production design, I don't think was at the top of the list in this film. Uh, I think it was just like, "Holy shit, we got to get something working." When he is going through and delivering his monologue, much like most good films or real movies, at least he states the theme of the film. Right? He says, "Look, I'm kind of I'm doing the show, but I'm not really doing anything else." And Cassandra's going on to all these greater things, and I really feel like I need to do something big with my life. Thus, stating your theme.
1: <laughs> let me let me let me interrupt for you a second, because so when, during the show, Wayne and Garth explained that they're in a new time slot, and they had to swap out with a couple of other shows. So they swapped out with Plant World, which also had to swap out with a show called Cooking World, which then had to swap out with a show called White Supremacy World. And I was trying to tie this back into those dark brown baby dolls at the beginning, wondering if they were. A prop left from one, if not all three of those shows. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, one hopes that it was the cooking show.
1: I, I don't know. But it was really bizarre for me to kind of be like, what are these little dark brown baby dolls? And then they're talking about white supremacist. And I got I got
0: uncomfortable. Given the, the state of the world in which we live, that joke plays better. Back in our past when it wasn't so much of a thing.
1: Nobody raised an eyebrow to that one.
0: Right. It was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. White supremacists are hilarious because they're ridiculous and certainly not on the front page of newspapers.
1: Wayne and Garth say that they uh, they had to swap out their their showtimes because they're going to see Aerosmith. And for, for any younger listeners, um, this is a band that uh, many of your grandparents reference when uh, they listen to the shitty music that you currently love. Here's a question that kept rattling in my head. Do Wayne and Garth only have one set of clothes?
0: Yeah, I think it's sort of Bart and Lisa Simpson territory. You know, it's they've got multiple versions of the same outfit.
1: So they're more uh, akin to Albert Einstein as opposed to, say, a homeless person.
0: Yeah, clearly... Wayne and Garth both approach their lives in a way where they don't want to waste the brain power and decision making <laughs> power of what do I wear today I got to think about the show. they're devoted to the show that way is their show live? one presumes so I mean even in the original, it seemed like that was the case, which yeah, but that was you
1: were on Saturday night live that that made sense this is a live show on there because my Like why they don't have an audience and they're going to see Aerosmith. Couldn't they just tape an episode and just air it? And is, and also from the first one, do they have sponsors now or are they back on public access? These are unimportant details, but I'm just trying to understand like, what are we carrying over from part one? And what of this is just, again, just a sloppy, you know, microwaved version of what we saw the last go round?
0: That, that is what this movie is. It's like a microwave milkshake. Like on paper, it sounds like <laughs> such a great idea, and then the final product is just this lump of shitty mess.
1: They uh, they in their show, and they have to run off to the mirth. Uh, so they in their their show, and they have to run off to the mirth mobile, uh, a la Adam West's Batman theme. And they tilt back the bust of a statue, and there's a button, and they push it, and the bookcase goes back. And then there's this fireman's pole. And then Garth grabs it and slides down it and he lets out this uncomfortable moan, which I'm assuming this is emitted from him because he likes the way it feels when his cock rubs on it.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I think, a little bit of a callback to him talking about climbing the rope in gym class. That sort of thing. Yeah, check that box. <laughs> right, right. What you? Hey, look, the fans came here. The tickets got <laughs> bought for a reason. They want to hear some swings, they want to hear we're not worthy. Don't,
1: don't worry. We, we get all that. So then we get one of our many, many times that that Wayne addresses us at the as the audience. You know, Mike Myers in these films particularly really mugs a lot for laughs. Um, and he does this in other films as well. And, you know, it makes sense on the set of Wayne's World that he would talk to the camera because he's on a show talking to his audience. And it's just kind of odd, you know, in in the movie setting. You know, as far as just sort of that breaking of the
0: fourth wall. Well, they do it in the original film as well, but it's a little more clever because the camera kind of gets handed off from Wayne to Garth. And there's a couple of times in particular that I thought were funny where it accidentally gets stolen by Ed O'Neill's kind of psychopath character.
1: Right. They don't do it. They don't do anything that meta or inside out. Well, you know, kind of playing with the uh playing with the concept.
0: Right. It's just, hey, remember the thing from the first movie? We have that, too. We're just not doing anything
1: with it. Have you watched Mike Myers on that relaunch of The Gong Show where he plays Tommy Maitland?
0: No, I just don't care. I've watched it.
1: He, he's like a grandpa version of every character he's ever done rolled into one it's it's just it's great when you watch it how anyone could not know that this is mike myers is someone who's never seen mike myers say a sentence in their life i mean it's clearly mike myers Im- immediately you know it's mike myers unless he was just out there going like you know donkey behave I mean, just like hitting all of the, the catchphrases does he have a scottish all-
0: accent in this
1: yeah he does oh of course he does it's, it's either it's either scottish or british or something and he's calling people cheeky monkeys and he's dancing around and he's doing you know he does that head pop with his eyes and it's it's well worth watching for about four minutes
0: like he is the paul mccartney of saturday night live in so many ways of the kind of goofball but so vanilla kind of comedian that sort of yeah. thing feels right for him, like, like sort of like Drew Carey. Although I would say Drew Carey, or Drew Carey is edgier, uh, surprisingly. <laughs> but it's that sort of thing of like Drew Carey makes a great host of The Prices Right.
1: Yeah, find the right vehicle and then you know drive it.
0: Right, but I would still rather watch The Prices Right than whatever Mike Myers does. <laughs> I, like I, at, at the end of this movie, I really dislike Mike Myers, partly because of your intro and talking about. Sort of his behavior, and I'm just a big believer that you behave like a professional on a set in an industry like that. Like, yes, you can be creative and weird and silly, but people's jobs depend on you, so act like a fucking man about this. Or a woman, Mm -hmm. not to be sexist. And I'd give him the same shit either way. And Mike Myers, in this story, just sounds like a whiny little bitch about everything, Then you see him in the film, and he's also... It really is a, waitress, get the coffee, here comes another mug. It happens all (laughs) through the movie.
1: Well, I think it's also reflective of of the character of, of Wayne as well. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that, uh, as we continue going forward. So Wayne doesn't take the, uh, boner pole. He decides to go down a service elevator to tell us what's been going on in the last year. And he says it's a year later. And then he tells us that he's getting hair in new places. And, and my assumption is that he's not talking about pubic hair. Because he's a grown man. He's and 45 years old. Re- clearly. And I'm like, is it ear hair? Knuckle hair? You know, is there something I don't know? But we're going to get into pubic hair a little bit later. His girlfriend, Cassandra, from the first movie, is cutting a new album. Uh, here we get our first swing. And the dick thrust that they do um he throws in the she'd give a dog a bone line and Wayne kind of hits on uh, this point that you know everyone's hassling him to do something with his life and to become an adult
0: yes As, like, like I was saying this is screenwriting 101 in the first 10 pages you state the theme of your film this is what it's about this is the the journey that the main character is going to go on and at this point, I'm thinking like, hey, this hasn't been funny so far, but it at least works like a movie where we have a character stating for the audience. You know, it's the uh, Disney song sort of thing, that opening song where the, the character states what it is that they want in the film. That's what this scene serves as. In theory, if they fucking stuck to it, which spoilers, <laughs> they don't how old is Wayne supposed to be? What was your guess? I mean, if you had to put a number on that, you would assume he's 2122 and Garth like there's a shot but while we're on the the subject, <laughs> there's a shot of Dana Carvey as Garth when it, it's the scene when he's with uh, Kim Basinger that we'll talk about later, but just the angle and the way that he's got his his chin tucked in, he looks like he is 51 years old. <laughs> and it is so distracting in this movie
1: don't watch this movie on high def blu-ray no. you know if you <laughs> if you can get an old vhs copy and maybe you know smear your television screen with a piece of pork <laughs> like, like, buy a vhs make it a player
0: more enjoyable and a sony 27 inch trinitron and that that is the ideal way to see this movie also turn the sound off
1: also, does Wayne have a job, and does he make money? Is he making money from the show? And and this isn't reflective of the film. I'm just kind of wanting to get your opinion. I just kept thinking, how is he paying for this warehouse? Like, is he selling, you know, dark brown naked baby dolls? Like, Going like back to season or
0: one, he's got Skag in all the pipes. <laughs> Second pipe on the left. <laughs> Leave the know. money in there. Yeah, one presumes that advertisers are paying them enough that they can afford this place which is also their studio but it's none of this stuff is ever explained
1: you don't think that they're squatters in the factory and like maybe there's (laughs) other
0: homeless people or drug addicts wandering around in the shadows they've got to chase off the indigence every night with one of those old like sicilian brooms or something Get out of here, Gracie would love to Pete.
1: see Wayne interview like junkies and prostitutes and just people that live on the fringe of society's you know, acceptable level of, of human behavior. <laughs> just oh. like, like, like schizophrenics and bipolar disorders. People with like severe, uh, debilitating mental disorders. You know, just like like weird... <laughs> sure. <laughs> I <don't>
0: know, like <laughs> Whoa, tonight on our show, we've got Mary Harrison. She lives in the basement. She believes she's the Little Mermaid and once killed her child by mistake. So, swing. Here's Dan and Donna. They integrate vomiting
1: into their love mating.
0: Hurl. <laughs>
1: right.
0: If you hurl on her, then I'm going to blow chunks. And then we'll all fuck each other. I get, he'll give a dog a bone. <laughs> <laughs> now, Now there's a movie I want to watch. Wayne
1: and Garth interviewing people that, that vomit during sex.
0: Yeah. If well, that, were, that
1: sounded so much better coming out than right. I thought it
0: was going to. Repeat it back to yourself and then think about what happens in this movie and ask yourself which film you want to see.
1: I'm not just repeating it back. I'm writing it down. That's a great idea.
0: We play Night of the <laughs> Living Dead in the middle of it. That shit's free.
1: <laughs> uh, Wayne says he wants to do something big with his life. And, and Mike Myers, it was interesting in watching this that he loves wordplay.
0: Yes. There are a couple of scenes throughout the film, like in, in this driving scene in particular, there's a bit where they pull through a drive-through and they're talking in uh, this staccato way that it, like would emulate what it sounds like when you hear someone speak to you from within a fast food place. There's a joke like that. There's one about a uh, Sweden that is just a bunch of crazy made up words thrown together that he clearly, yeah. you really choose the fat on the, on that scene.
1: But he's always done that. I mean, if you look at all of his films and here's the thing, I I really like Mike Myers as much as we, you know, kind of take cheap shots at uh, a lot of the movies that we talk about. I, I like Mike
0: <laughs> Myers. I think he's,
1: I think he's, here I think it our batters, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think he's—you can genuinely can really be funny, but in this movie, that's not the case. There's one moment as he's kind of given his exposition. He also tells us that Garth that he got pubes. Like I don't ever remember talking with anyone about getting pubic hair, let alone in my mid to late 30s, 40s. Like how old are they supposed to be? I just thought that that was really. <laughs> odd and then when he gets in the car so he gets in the car with garth and these two you know nameless roadies that they have with them garth tells him he's like you didn't tell him about my pubes he's like no i I didn't he's like i didn't tell him then he gives a knowing look to these two long hairs in the back and kind of giggles which one makes Wayne a liar and two just makes him a bad
0: friend there's a lot of moments again a callback to our previous season of pick six movies where wayne just acts like an asshole as the hero of this film and begs the question why we would care about his success or failure considering his behavior. And this is a minor example of that. There are much more egregious examples later. But, yeah, it's just kind of him being a jerk to presumably his best friend, you know, the guy that is always at his side, the guy that's second build in the movie, for God's sakes, (laughs) co-starring.
1: So we're driving around and we're listening to Radar Love, and there's a DJ called Handsome Dan who's played by Harry Shearer who has a very distinctive voice. He sounds just like Kent Brockman from The Simpsons on that. Quick little fun fact for you. I know how much you love fun facts. Uh, the radio station call letters in this movie is WPIG, which was the rival station to WKRP in Cincinnati, which was a sitcom on TV uh, way back in the 1900s. Another fun fact, Bo, we are old.
0: You know what? Now that you've mentioned it, I kind of would rather be talking about that Thanksgiving Day episode of WKRP than this movie. So I propose we take a pause and just uh recap that episode, which is legitimately funny. I have watched that episode within the past six months.
1: I would rather be watching any episode of WKRP and then talking about it than talking through this movie.
0: I I think we know what season three is now, but (laughs) WKR pick six movies. We've got flows as they're, they're driving around. Like, again, this is a callback to the scene from Wayne's world where they're listening to Bohemian Rhapsody, but you know, I know Bohemian Rhapsody. I served with Bohemian Rhapsody and golden earrings, radar love you, sir, are no Bohemian Rhapsody. And it doesn't have the energy and even kind of the silliness of that first introduction of the characters. It, it, again, it just feels like, Hey, here's a thing that happened in the original movie. And here's a not as good version of it.
1: Yeah. Radar Love is still a great song, but it sure. doesn't have the same, the same bite that, uh, the, the, the first movie had. Again, everything is just sort of this watered down pale imitation of the original. And it's here that they talk about, um, uh, handsome Dan, the disc jockey and his, you know, velvet voice. And even if you don't know who Harry Shearer is and, uh, you know, whether or not you feel that he is a handsome man or not, you can see this joke coming way off in the distance. And the movie circles back in about 60 minutes to, to, to sort of pay off the joke. So put that on a shelf and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Our travels take us to this donut shop where, you know, Bo, you touched on this a little earlier. They go up to a, a microphone and then they uh, there's a sign that says, if, you know, we don't get your order correct, you get it free. So Wayne then makes his order and intentionally makes his voice choppy. So there's no way they could understand it. Um, the, the twist of the joke, by that I mean the clearly obvious joke that's coming. Uh, the person on the other end understands everything he said despite his attempt to trick them. And, you know, Wayne and Garth give this response that's a wah, 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 you know, and it's here's the other thing. Why wouldn't they just say, no, you got the order wrong, like order something when you get there. Go, hey, stupid. I wanted, you know, five Krellers and two coffees. You gave me, you know, four Krellers and three coffees. It's free.
0: Yeah, you throw one of those coffees back in his face, demand to see a manager and get your shit for free.
1: That's it. I mean, this is a very poorly thought out policy for any company. They're going to shut this down within like a day. I've worked at other places where this kind of like, you know, stupid behavior can be exploited.
0: And this is one that's just like, yeah, there's just. (laughs) If you own a restaurant, just a word of advice, I know of which I speak. If you own a restaurant, your employees are a 100% stealing from you. If you don't think the general public is going to take a crack at that with that kind of policy, <laughs> you are sorely mistaken, sir or madam. So
1: we get to the Aerosmith concert, and everyone has lighters. There's no cell phones. Wayne lights a guy's hair on fire, and he doesn't immediately try to put it out or help the guy because, as you pointed out earlier, Wayne is a dick.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it, Like his reaction to it is, I hope no one saw me in danger of that man's <laughs> life.
1: Uh, so Steven Tyler, uh, the lead singer for Aerosmith, which again is your grandmother's favorite band, comes out on stage. And he looks like like Jack Skellington if he had human
0: skin. Yes, yeah. <laughs> just, he's, just, he's just bones. But always has been. He like Yeah. He looks like if someone took Mick Jagger and just stretched him out. <laughs> threw a longer wig on him. It was like, go fucking crazy. But I, I got to tell you, watching this. I was like, you know what? I bet they were a lot of fun to see back in, uh, you know, 19, buh, 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 whenever this was filmed. And, <laughs> but, you know, it like I'm not a, the biggest Aerosmith fan in the world, but seeing him gyrate on stage, I was like, I bet that's entertaining.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it was a, a great show. So much so <laughs> that in our movie, there's a girl on some guy's sh- uh, shoulders at the concert, and she immediately uh, takes her top off. So presumably she's topless and Garth is watching. And then he, I guess has like some sort of spontaneous orgasm in his pants. And the the thing is that Dana Carvey can be really funny. I really, really like Dana Carvey in the right circumstances. But as you noted earlier, he looks like, like he's like 40 years old in this
0: movie. Uh, speaking of Garth in a bar, In the original film, there's a scene where he's getting hassled by some guy after he stands up for a young lady, and the guy pushes him down, so he goes to his car and puts on this crazy invention to shock the guy. And there's none of that spirit in this film. Like, you described in the intro, too, that he based this character on this sort of super intelligent but socially awkward guy. And there's none of that... That in this movie, other than the socially awkward part, there's no point where he seems like a really smart guy who's got a lot going on internally and just lacks the ability to express himself, which is how he feels in the original.
1: In this movie, if you if you didn't know that that was part of his character, that he was sort of this, I don't know, super smart. MacGyver type, you know, character who is also an excellent drummer in this movie. He comes across as just an adult with special needs.
0: Yeah. That, that is in my notes that he appears handicapped in this film. Like the scenes with Kim Basinger in, in particular are just head scratching where you're like, I don't understand. Anyway, we'll get to those, but he, he, the character is so frustratingly inconsistent in this movie and he doesn't bring anything. Not Dana Carvey. Like, I think Dana Carvey's doing what he can. But just as the character is written in the film, there's just nothing for him to do, really.
1: So Wayne and Garth crowd surf. Someone grabs Wayne's butt. And I think Garth, you know, has an erection as they're floating around. And then they crowd surf to the edge of the the broader group of people. And then they're set down by security. And then we get this series of what I'm going to call, like, naked gun jokes where other people and things are delivered uh, by means of crowd surfing. So like a pizza guy comes over and he's got a stack of like, you know, five or six pizzas and then a goat comes over the top. And then the last thing is a refrigerator, Uh uh-huh. which I just want to argue, shouldn't the sequence of those jokes go pizza guy, refrigerator, goat.
0: I mean, goat and refrigerator are, are kind of neck and neck. And I mean, that's the problem. I get your point.
1: You order the pizzas. Okay. And then, and then you're thirsty. You want something to drink that's cold in the fridge. And then the goat, you're like, "What? A
0: goat?" It would be better like keeping with the animal theme. It would be better if it was guy with pizzas like a goldfish in a bowl. Because a goat feels extreme. Like that where's that goat yeah. going? Who asked for the goat? What are they doing with it? Are, are They're
1: going to have sex? They're going to have sex with that goat. Probably. <laughs> That's what I think. And yes, Garth. I know what's going to happen to that goat.
0: But I would argue not to just completely rag on this movie. I think this is actually a funny gag and sort of what the movie ought to be is just this over the top silly thing where you're just lobbing jokes at the audience all the time.
1: But the movie doesn't know what it wants to be. It has yes. elements of that and it bounces around. It's the, the, the tone of it. Again, when you look at the naked gun, you know, you know, Again, it's, it's that sequence of jokes. It's like, you know, foreground, background. It's sort of the, the juxtaposition of, you know, very dry delivery of dialogue against ridiculousness in the background. In this thing, it's just like a, like what I envision being inside a very sad clown car is, you know, it's just, it's cram packed with a bunch of, you know, stuff that's trying to be funny and none of it's, is, is working very well. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but I I, do, I did like that joke for the there there are a handful of jokes in this movie that I really do like and that one's pretty good and we follow Wayne and Garth backstage because they got their laminate passes and that's where we meet Cassandra w- who is now with her new uh, producer Bobby Cohn can
1: I, just can we just call him Christopher Walken Yeah,
0: it's Christopher Walken. Being her producer, and he is, uh, as I refer to him in my notes, the Rob Lowe of our film. He is essentially mm-hmm. the same character. He is the skeevy outsider who has designs on Cassandra and is a producer in gl- and kind of glitzy.
1: And, and backstage, it's like full-on early 90s. Like, it, it's hard to, at times to see the actors through all of the grunge that's going on. It's just plaid shirts and ripped jeans as far as the eye can see.
0: They they filmed an episode of 120 minutes while this was being <laughs> shot.
1: And you know, the point you made earlier about how Wayne is our hero, but he's really just an asshole. I don't think in the first or second film that our bad guy, in this case, Christopher Walken, ever really does anything that is uh untoward or nefarious. He's just a dude living his life, going along. Like, he's not deceptive. He never purposefully does something that is malicious. And I was like, I don't think he's even a bad guy. I think he's just a dude in the movie, but that's my
0: opinion. I would argue Rob Lowe is a little underhanded and, and plays, plays a little fast and loose with what he says versus with what he does. He's not a terrible villain. He's not out to rule the world, but he's kind of a jerk. Christopher Walken seems to genuinely be looking out for the best interests Of Cassandra, I mean, as well as one to get it wet, like that's totally on the table for him. And and God bless her, good Lord, Christopher Walken is a song and dance man. You'd be lucky to have him in the sack.
1: You'd be, yeah, you absolutely. And in it, Cassandra, in this scene, she's dressed to kill. She's wearing this tight dress. To call it low cut is an understatement. I mean, she's kind of like spilling out of this garment. And then here comes. Wayne in his ripped jeans, his one black shirt, his one hat, with his public access show name sprayed across the top of it, and and you know when I saw this, I was thinking it was like like have you, have you ever seen a, like, like a politician wearing a hat with their campaign or logo slogan on it? <laughs> oh was sure, that. yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who, who, am I kidding? If you've turned on the television in the last two years, you've seen that. <laughs> right. And you know, how that kind of made you feel, made you feel sad for the person who's like a walking billboard for their own shitty brand. You know, whether it's like, you know, some sort of paint company or I, I don't know, not that not people who have paint companies. I'm sure they're wonderful people, but you know, it's just like, like that's how I feel when I, when I see Wayne. Cause I can't even imagine having a conversation with Wayne. Like if you didn't know his show, if, if you didn't know what Wayne's world was, you, you know, you kind of walk with this guy's like, Oh, what's Wayne world? Wait, what's Wayne's world? Oh, that's my public access show. And you have hats for that show and you wear them all the time, even when you sleep. Like, like, why is your blonde friend rubbing his dick all the time? Like, like just everything about this is just,
0: it's just odd to me. That sounds like a public access show in all fairness.
1: (laughs) A guy who wears the same clothes all the time and has a best friend who won't constantly stop touching himself. Uh Uh-huh. By the way, did you see our, our dark brown naked baby dolls next to Ronald McDonald? Right. <laughs> this is weird. That, that's what public access was. That was hardcore public access when it was just bizarre. And this is again, it's not that. That's okay.
0: Right. So yeah, you, like if you rolled the dice on the right night on public access, you might get yourself a leather daddy. It could have happened. Yeah.
1: Depending what city you were in and the time of day, there was a hundred percent chance
0: P- of that. Pennsylvania, three 15 AM on a Saturday. <laughs> Keep your It was eyes just like peeled. a half hour.
1: Yeah. A half hour of like a, a, a dude in some sort of gorilla outfit, just like sharpening a knife on a piece of leather. And you just like, what in the, hell just talking about oiling
0: about? his vest as he sharpens the knife on a, like an honest to goodness, whetstone. <laughs> be sure you rub the oil in thoroughly.
1: Wayne saddles up to Cassandra. Christopher Walken there. When I think of Christopher Walken, I think he's a real switch hitter, and he's able to pull off comedy and drama. And in this movie, he's he's not really funny at all, which which is fine. I mean, as you noted, he's the bad guy. But it I think it should be noted that Walken. Is a powerhouse a uh, player when it comes to Saturday Night Live, just in his own right? I think that he's, uh, you know, clearly most famously known as the more Cowbell.
0: The Continental it was pretty big. I, I always thought those sketches were very funny.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. That was I have that as well. Saying like there was this lesser known sketch of the Continental, which was a personal favorite. It was very funny and
0: awkward and weird. If I may, my favorite walk in sketch is a little bit under known. Which is, uh, my favorite Christopher Walken performance comes from the David Cronenberg film, The Dead Zone. I love that movie. I love him in it. And he did a sketch on Saturday Night Live where he essentially played the same character. (laughs) Only he didn't predict big events or deaths (laughs) or emergencies. (laughs) And he had to touch someone to read their future. And he would like touch someone's hand and there would be this trill of violins, this pump, and he would jerk backwards and say, like your sandwich today, the turkey's gonna be dry, and they're gonna leave the mustard off. And that would be it. That's the big prediction. And people would be would uncomfortably <laughs> excuse themselves. And it was one of the Funniest things I ever saw on that show, and to this day, it tickles me to the core.
1: I know this sketch, (laughs) and it it was very, very funny, unlike the movie that we're watching. (laughs) Right.
0: But but to the point of, yes, Walken is steeped in SNL. He showed up in Joe Dirt, uh, I would argue a far superior film to Wayne's World 2. Yes. But he comes to play, right? And I think his, his gig in this movie is he's an actor. He understands his, the point of him in this movie isn't to be the comedian. He is the straight man. He is the villain. And that's how he plays it. Although even in this, uh, there's a later scene we'll get into with the a sphincter says what thing. And I think yeah. he's funny in that just because he's just so down the middle with his performance. But, <laughs> but yeah, so we're, we're backstage. Uh, Bobby, Uh, a.k.a. Christopher Walken, is being a little cozy with Cassandra. Aerosmith strolls by. We get a we're not worthy because, you know, let's pull that old chestnut out make sure everybody gets what they paid for.
1: See, at that point, when they say we're not worthy and they fall on their knees and they're bowing down to him, I just wondered if Steven Tyler thought this was just the preamble to a backstage guy-on-guy blowjob.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you got the right key, baby, but the wrong keyhole. As Steven Tyler once said.
1: <laughs> so Wayne and Garth, they follow the band and they see Heather Locklear, who is playing herself, and there's this this you know ethereal show wing that they give, and they're, you know, kind of goo goo eyes for her, which again, Wayne's a dick, and he constantly has a wandering eye in this film. He's always noticing other women and commenting on that. You can't do
0: that when you're in a committed relationship. I assume he's Mormon. <laughs> and that he's just like, all right, I need a sister-wife for Cassandra. That's the only reasonable explanation, I feel, for his behavior. Because, yeah, like, every time a remotely pretty girl is around him, it's just like, you know, Cassandra who? Boilers? We're, they're broken up for half the movie anyway, and you know he was going to fuck Drew Barrymore.
1: Yeah, we'll, and we'll get to that later. Christopher Walken and Cassandra get pulled into the exclusive VIP area with Heather Locklear and Aerosmith. And then our heroes are locked out, and they're kind of in the the nerds and uglies of the VIP area. And then who comes strolling up? This was a very pleasant surprise, but Bob Odenkirk. Who would later play Saul Goodman on Breaking Bad and, uh, Better Call Saul. He was, you know, part of, uh, uh, Mr. Show, uh, Bob, uh, Mr. Show with Bob and David. And then beside him is Robert Smigel, who voiced Triumph the Insult comic dog and wrote a ton of humor. Both of them, uh, wrote for Saturday Night Live and they come over and they, they just straight up look like they're, they're rejects from Lambda, Lambda, Lambda. You know what I mean? They got the homeroom <laughs> glasses and, and then like the members only jackets. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost so over the top that, it it made me laugh of of that like they almost knew how how shittily stupid they looked although that may have not have been the case and then here's the thing these so these two nerds come over and they recognize Wayne and Garth from their show and they ask him if they're the guys from Wayne's World you know but the show that he's advertising on his shitty sm- arguably smelly hat and then Wayne is like uh no no that's not us. Why would you do that? You have a show. You should be flattered that you have fans. You know who right. know you and know who you are. Wayne in this movie is such a needy person who's constantly looking for attention. Why wouldn't he jump at the chance to talk to a fan of his
0: crappy television show? Oh, because they're not the right kind of fans, Chad. That's the problem. Is oh these nerds that that's not our audience. I'm cool, like. If you're going to do this, and I, I really felt like Smigel and Odenkirk were really slumming in this thing, even if they were <laughs> right for SNL at the time. Uh, these performances, like you said, it, like these are, are, are roles that in the past would have been played by Eddie and Kids, ask your grandparents about him.
1: <laughs> yeah, but again, this is all pre-Triumph. This is pre Mister. Is this pre Mister Show? Yeah, uh, I got to yeah, do the math yeah, on yeah. it. No, it's, sure. no, it's no, it's post, it's yeah. post Mister Show.
0: Yeah, that's a oh, that's yeah. a shame.
1: Hey man, we all got bills to pay.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> look, I love Bob, Bob Odenkirk. I think he's a surprisingly good writer. As a matter of fact, uh, thanks to a, a, a gift of yours, he, I, I've uh, read that collection. It's quite good. Uh, called a load of hooey. yeah it's fantastic and and so yeah it's nice seeing them but they're they're kind of thrown away in this movie and the one thing i will say about this i i didn't get a laugh out of it but i do think it's a a, kind of a funny looney tunes joke where when wayne says oh no we're not them and gar says yeah if wayne said it it's true and pointing at wayne and, like, look, man, yeah. I am panning for gold here. It's mostly rocks and shit.
1: Your threshold for what makes a good joke in this movie is so incredibly low. And, again, I'm going to throw a couple out there that that made me laugh out loud. I think there's maybe two or three times I really laughed out loud. And they're equally as stupid. I watched but this yeah, movie
0: that's... three times. I took it where <laughs> I could get it.
1: So, the way that scene ends is it's just over. And then we cut to right. the next scene where Wayne, uh, is in bed and he's having a dream and he is sleeping in his one black shirt, um, his one black hat and, uh, uh, kind of red, uh, boxer shorts, um, with, uh, his favorite hockey team's, uh, logo on it. And I can't figure, Wayne never takes his hat off, which I was just wondering, like, do you think he has some sort of like disfigured head or maybe like, it's kind some of kind Jason of,
0: like, skull? It's got that big lump on one side or something. I think it's more that the wig is sewn to the hat.
1: (laughs) Did they they, they come in a pair?
0: Yeah, it's just put the hat on and boom, your hair's ready for the movie.
1: That's what they told me at Spencer Gifts, and it worked like a charm. You should have seen how much candy I got. (laughs) Sure. I wondered whether or not he might have like a little cranial quaddo on his head. You mean like a little man that pops out and might say more offensively things uh-huh. you know, to other women? You know what I mean? Like, like he takes off his hat and just pops up and it's like, nice tits. Yeah. <laughs> it hides back in the mullet or something. Look at him
0: jiggling and a wiggling. Because you know it would be slurping saliva. It's only got half a tongue and one eye. Like three teeth and a half open mouth. Swing! Swing!
1: And he, you know he treats it better than he does Garth.
0: <laughs> it's the only the only person that knows his innermost thoughts you know like because he would know every time that Wayne jerked off you know <laughs> what was that one about if if
1: Garth if Garth had a cranial quarto and he had to keep score of how long how many times he jerked off a day the answer would be all the time
0: in this movie certainly like he is he is doing everything but but like rubbing against fire hydrants and the sides of buildings. It's like he acts like he's 14 years old in this movie. But again, as we've discussed, he looks like he, he's 83. So it is this incredible juxtaposition of what the character ought to be. And the fact that he looks like somebody's dad, granddad (laughs) right? with the glasses and stuff. He looks like it, like he could play the the character of Dell, the aged roadie in this movie. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that, that would have been better casting, I can tell you right now. So let, let's get up to Dell. So, so Wayne has this dream, and um, he sees this this tall naked Indian guy who he goes to the desert and he uh, sees uh, Jim Morrison again. Go ask your great grandpa who that is. And Jim Morrison tells Wayne to put on a concert in Aurora, and he has to go find a roadie named Dell. Uh, presson in england uh to help him out and so uh jim morrison tells wayne that uh, garth will get a sports illustrated football phone um in the mail and his sports illustrated swimsuit issue the next day as a kind of a hook to let him know that this dream is is not you know fictitious or something that you know he made up from from eating too many Krellers late at night uh then then you know kind of wayne wakes up all of this sort of comes uh You know, comes to light because Garth walks in and he says, hey, my Sports Illustrated showed up. And again, for younger listeners, Sports Illustrated was a magazine, which is like the Internet on paper. And he says, you know, I got my swimsuit issue, which was like, I don't know, PG rated Internet porn back in the day. It
0: was it was softcore playboy. Yeah. Yeah. It was just,
1: it was basically, you know, kind of like, like what you see on TV now. And then he's like, and I got my football phone, which these were phones that, you know, plugged into the wall and they would be shaped like weird things. So he got this. And, um, immediately when I see Garth holding a, uh, a swimsuit issue, I'm like, that's covered. That's covered in semen. Like he didn't <laughs> oh, get it yeah. <laughs> like, like immediately before he even came to tell him that he was just like, you know what? I got to break this in.
0: <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh, who's hot in the Bahamas this year? This won't take long.
1: (laughs) So Wayne and Garth go down to visit Cassandra in the studio because Wayne feels inspired to put on this concert. And then... As this movie is want to do, we set up yet another joke that we're going to knock over a little bit later. There's a bunch of people outside and they're putting chickens in boxes and stacking up uh, melons. And there's a guy uh, walking back and forth or two guys walking back and forth with a pane of glass. And Wayne says, you got to wonder if this is going to pay off later, which it does. And we'll touch on that. But it feels like the movie could have been smarter about the payoff because the payoff of it is just what you were expecting to happen.
0: It's, it's just, it's, it's just lazy. The gag, there's a lot of that in this movie of here's the easiest possible joke we can make with this setup. The better joke would be they accidentally run over the millionaire who's been paying these guys. Who, right, You know, something dumb like that. I was thinking
1: that not that they were the guys, I was like, what if they had a situation where they ran over the guys who were carrying all the stuff? Like, like totally independent right. of the Nothing. things in their hands. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Something like that. Just something unexpected. Uh, you know, we talked about it last season. Sometimes comedy is just being surprised by something, you know, and this joke is just, hey, here's the setup. How knowing are we that we understand how a joke is constructed? Being goddamn comedians, being paid to write this. <laughs> yeah, you're super clever that you understand the setup and the punchline. Oh, Chad!
1: They were only allowed to eat food that came under the door when they were writing this. It, <laughs> like so. Yeah. they maybe they were. They had low blood sugars. It's hour
0: fifty-four. Nobody <laughs> trusts in each each other anymore.
1: So we go inside the studio. Christopher Walken's in there and he's playing the guitar quite well. I'd like to add. And again, Walken is handsome. He's rich. He's successful. He's a record producer and he's getting uh, Cassandra an album that he says is going to have at least three singles. And at this point in the movie, he's done nothing to classify him as a bad guy. I mean, he's just a, he's just a record producer who sees some talent and I'm doing my job. And then, so Wayne just immediately jumps into the conversation and he tells them that he's going to put on a concert. He, again, he's like a, a child and he looks around and they're like, you know, you're putting on a concert. He's like, yeah. And he sees a poster for Woodstock and he tells Christopher Walken, he's like, my concert's going to be called oh, Wayne Stock. And then he looks around and, and he sees a poster for Pearl Jam and Aerosmith and Van Halen. And he says, and you know, these are the bands that are going to be there. And he's just looking around the room, making shit up and I think that's how they wrote the script for this movie.
0: Oh, no surprise there. And like the whole gag of this scene is that he's doing what's essentially a, uh, a usual suspects where he's like, Hey, I'm putting on this concert. I'm big and important too. And it's going to have, uh, Aerosmith and, you know, and just starts rattling all this stuff off. And it's like, well, you're just making shit up. Like, I know you have this idea, but you have done nothing to execute yet. And you're just being jealous and vain at this point.
1: Which is how they wrote the script for this movie. Just looking around making shit up. (laughs) That's, that's, that seems, that's the core of it. But then. Then they veer off again into like Zucker Abrams and Zucker mode where just weird shit starts to happen, but not enough to where you take it so far. So Wayne's looking around the studio and then he sees like an old man making a kayak out of a, like a big tree with a hatchet and he says he'll be there. And then he looks over and suddenly Rip Taylor is, uh, he looks over and he sees Rip Taylor and he's, you know, dumping confetti on the head of some studio musician. And Wayne says he'll be there. So you just sort of get two, but it doesn't kind of continue down this wacky path. I don't know if it would have been better served if it had or hadn't, but it just, it's, it, as soon as you introduce that joke, you kind of back off of it. And so, so Christopher Walken essentially calls bullshit on all this because he knows how shit like this worked. And Wayne clearly smells like he's in clothing that is rife with a week's worth of farts. <laughs>
0: You know, it's a real, like, hey, we're going to do the callback again to the first film of the sphincter bit, and and Walken doesn't fall for it. And this is where I think Walken's kind of funny, where he says, you know, like, you think I'm going to say what, which would make me a sphincter, I'm not going to do it. And th- they flip out about it, and their reaction to it isn't funny, because it's just a lot of... You know, and that yeah. sort of thing. Like, it's a real Jackie Gleason reaction to it.
1: And then Mike, Mike Myers does that mumbled wordplay that he does of like, you know, you know, you thought we said this, but we were doing that. And he's smart. We dumb. And and are just like.
0: Right. It's the uh, mugging again of just like, just let the joke happen and don't punctuate it with you giving it the. I wonder if that mugging for laughs is. Part
1: of the training, if you're somebody who's, who's been brought up in sketch comedy or even sketch comedy for television where, you know, you have a four or five minute sketch and that kind of mugging either helps to um, accentuate a joke or it's a way to pause for laughs, you know, during a sketch that you can hold a, a silly face and the audience will laugh with it or there's something that
0: preceded that. But, but yeah, but I argue that like the other veterans of like you know ucb and and ground lanes and stuff like that like the not ready for primetime players who all went on to movies to one degree or another and those guys understood film comedy you're right it's a different thing but i and i don't know that penelope spheris is a an agile enough comedic director to sniff that out maybe
1: she wasn't on this film. She oh, got fair enough. Yeah, sorry. Because of the yeah, because of the whole.
0: I said no cream cheese with onions. Right. Like, and I'm sure she was like, "Motherfucker, do you understand that I directed like the decline of Western civilization part two? That I did one of the greatest rock documentaries that has ever come down the pipe, and you are acting like this."
1: Wayne and Garth say they're going to England to to meet up with Dell, And then there's this bit where um there's like a plane on a, like a wire and it's, you know, it's intentionally looks bad. And they say that Paramount was too cheap to send them to London. And then what's weird is that there are actors in London in front of, you know, the real location, but you know, the, the character that's supposed to be Wayne, we only see from the back and it's a very tall, skinny person. And Garth is a much shorter, heavier person. So it's clearly not them. And that's the joke, but, they sent these people to England. They filmed them on location. Like I don't get the cheapness part of it. I mean it's 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 kind of a I don't know, somewhat funny visual gag, but it it just it doesn't make any sense.
0: If you go to the meta gag of, oh, it's funny if you know the studio is paying for us to go to England, but we don't go, we send these other actors instead along with the crew required. And we're kind of frivolously spending the money in that way. And, you know, kind of as a, you know, middle finger to the studio or something like that. I can get, I can get a little punk rock with that, but yeah, it doesn't work in the movie though.
1: That's how you do that joke. The way they do it is just completely misguided. You know, it's like they, it was like they colored outside the lines, you know, like, I don't know what the hell you guys are trying to accomplish here. So, they go to Dell's apartment, and in my opinion, this character should have been the bright star of this sequel. Oh. He could have been like a like a pre-racist uh, meltdown, Michael Richards. You, are you know, like so if it had right. been if it had been played by Ozzy Osbourne, or let's like you know if they could have gotten him Keith Richards or Mick Jagger, if he hadn't been in the first one, Alice Cooper, you know, like that could have been like like this jalapeno. Spice to this movie, but instead we get this, uh, performance by Ralph Brown, who had been in the crying game and Alien three, and he just plays it in this somber tone where he sounds like a turtle talking, uh, from a cartoon. He's just like, hello, mate. You know, how are you? Yeah. It's, it's almost like he's like talking so slow. He's talking backwards. Well,
0: <laughs> he backward masks himself. <laughs> I, I like this character and i don't even think it's the worst written character of the film i just wish it mattered you know i wish this character mattered to the movie and he kind of doesn't and it's really frustrating no not at all like he there should be a moment where he has to do something heroic from his old roadie days like he tells some story i know this is more fan fiction of how to make a movie better <laughs> but like if this character had told this story about like you know his the craziest things i ever had to do the one thing i told keith richards i would never pull my own thumb off or whatever and then at the end of the movie he's got to pull his thumb off for wayne to save the show something but instead it's just like hey every now and again we're gonna cut to him he's gonna tell a funny story and that's it
1: your impersonation of dell sounded like uh dracula
0: in fairness, every impression I do sounds a little bit like him. Even my Clarice Starling, which is tough.
1: Remember the – the. no one is going to remember this reference. But do you uh, remember uh, Minute Work with Emilio Estevez and uh, Charlie Sheen? And Keith David. And, yes, I do. And, yeah, And Keith David. I wanted this character to be the rock and roll equivalent of Keith David. You know, just like the stories get so progressively crazier and weirder and he's, he's truly unpredictable. Yeah. Like you said, like, you know, pulling everything, like he, he, he literally might kill someone. And in this, they, they dance around that, but they just don't pay it off. And I think it's, to me, it goes back to that performance of it being so. I don't know what we should do. And it's like, man, eh, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm not worried about you.
0: Yeah. It, it's really frustrating because as you said, this should be the spice that, that brings this movie. It kind of gels it together, right? Like he, he's the one who can be totally crazy. We've already had some of these Looney Tunes style moments, like with the crowd surfing, and the stuff around happening around the office, and it should just lean into that. And then it just kind of forgets that's what it was ever doing. Because, you know, like we get the story from Dell, who is this legendary roadie who's quit the game. And the one line that I really do like from him is about how, you know, that's why Keith Richards can't be killed with conventional weapons. I think that's a funny line. But he's like, I'm not going to go with you. And then on their way out, Wayne says, I guess Jim was wrong about you. And he's like, you know, wait, Jim Morrison came to you in a dream. Did he have a half naked Indian there that seemed gratuitous? And it's like, okay. And then Garth's like, whoa, whoa, half naked Indian. Hold on. (laughs) Slow down. Tell me more about this. Can you let me go to the bathroom and you guys just talk louder. (laughs) Is that cool? I can't hear you! (laughs) (laughs) But Dell finally agrees that he's going to go with them after they have that realization that, yes, it was Jim Morrison who also came to him in a dream, thus making all this kind of mystical, goofy road comedy or something. Except it decides in the next scene it's not going to be that. Correct. Because we now have...
1: Christopher Walken, who is continuing to help Cassandra's career, he's on the phone with Mr. Big from part one. He's talking to his boss or partner, whatever, that Cassandra wants to stay in Aurora because she has a boyfriend. I'm assuming that they're talking about Wayne, but I can either confirm or deny that. There may be a whole separate movie where she has maybe another life with a character that doesn't you know, look like his last meal was from the free sample display at Costco or something. And then... (laughs) walking Walken tells mr big that he's going to get rid of the boyfriend and the band and he's going to bring cassandra to los angeles now again you could argue here that he's being you know somewhat you know devious at this point but he's talking to his boss about signing a singer and he's just removing obstacles to make cassandra's dreams come true
0: is he really a bad guy no no he is not he does nothing in this movie the the worst thing he does is that he doesn't admit that she's near when Wayne calls him. That is the most villainous behavior that we can attribute to this character. And it's not that bad considering he thinks this guy's kind of a loser. He's not good for this girl who is certainly putting out the you know, the landing lights for this guy. Well, we'll get to it, but no, Christopher Walken is not the villain of this movie. You can't convince me otherwise.
1: All you have to do in the film is take about 30 seconds and have his character create a situation that puts Wayne in a bad light in the eyes of Cassandra to make her like him less. That's all you have to do. It could be, I don't know, like a phone message or a note that was written or, you know, something that could be misconstrued and then he's a bad guy, but they don't, they don't do that at all.
0: Chad, I can make him a more villainous character. In fifteen seconds, have him murder Garth. No, in this very scene where he's talking to Mister Big, you have him tell Mister Big, "Hey, there's this small timer putting together a music festival called Wayne Stock. Any you tell any artist who you know he reaches out to, you, if they play there, they're never gonna work with me again, or something." There you go, and yeah, and perfect. You, it, it's three lines. Don <laughs> he's not a bad guy he's a good guy he's a good guy he's our
1: hero he's my favorite character in the whole movie oh, especially well, the, that whole sphincter scene earlier that's <laughs> pretty good.
0: good i i i do like dell as a character i don't i don't think it's a great performance of of this character i wish i like the, he should be the carl from uh, uh from caddyshack you know, that character yeah. that drifts in and is a maniac and is the wild person and who at the end of the movie inadvertently does something that saves the day.
1: Yeah. And then I agree that that Dell should be this sort of wild card, which leads us to our next scene. We're at the donut shop and Dell is telling Um, A group of people about how he and Keith Moon and somebody else like broke into a candy shop to get a bunch of M&Ms to fill a brandy snifter. And then there's a a guard tiger in this candy shop and he had to beat the owner and his son to death with their own shoes. And then, you know, Wayne and Garth give it a finger in the collar like, you know, this guy's a nut, you know, job as uh, Garth calls him a little bit later. I think he calls him a nut bar. You know, Dell tells them that there's only one place that they can hold this concert, which is at Adelaide Stevens Memorial Park. Um, Adelaide uh, Stevenson was a, a politician from Illinois um, who twice ran for president. If you don't know that, go read a book. Ed O'Neill uh, shows up to reprise his role as the crazy donut shop owner from the first one. And he spouts off a bunch of, you know, wacky nonsense sure. for no real good reason. And again, Ed O'Neill, best known as Al Bundy from Married with Children. If you're old, he was also uh, Sofia Vergara's husband from Modern Family. If you're less old, if you're young, you don't care who Ed O'Neill
0: is. Or if if you ever saw The Adventures of Ford Fairlane, where he had the song, booty time, booty time all around the world
1: (laughs) remember that now i'd forgotten that one booty time booty time you know what hey 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 (laughs) hold on that's showing up uh in in a latter season i can guarantee (laughs) i can guarantee that one so wade and garth are now in the mirth mobile uh and it's at night and in the rain garth then fills a glass of water with a spray gun that you would normally find behind the bar but in this case it's it's inside the car and garth uh, then sets the, the glass, um, on the dashboard. There's a big thud and then we see a dinosaur peeking in the window as a pop culture reference from the original Jurassic Park that had come out just six months earlier. This is not a joke, in my opinion.
0: No, it's just here is a thing that you will remember. It is, it's, it's the same kind of joke you would see in one of them, like superhero parody movies, you know, like, yeah,
1: yeah like not enough, an- not another, whatever movie right like it's just like it's just shit that happens
0: it's also here's the other frustrating thing about this yes it's not funny it's not a joke it's just a hey remember this from that movie everyone saw it's Mm -hmm. also a callback to a thing that happened in the original movie where robert patrick by the way kids by Lost After Dark featuring Robert Patrick. Um <laughs> Ro- a fine actor. A fine actor who can really <laughs> hold together a horror film. So Robert Patrick in the original movie shows up and as as you know the Terminator 2 the T1000 or whatever he was. Mm-hmm. And it was like okay that's it, similarly not really a joke. And doing a callback to a thing that wasn't a joke in the first place just to do the thing again. And it, oh, Chad, it drives me crazy when I'm watching these movies. <laughs> you kids get off my gun. <laughs> it really <laughs> These goddamn wrong number dialers.
1: Did you feel like Carvey and Myers had any chemistry at all in this film?
0: No, uh, I, and in the first one, there's, uh, the scene on the hood where they're watching the airplanes fly over at the beginning, (laughs) Yeah, where I think there's a legitimate laugh from Mike Myers, where I think Dana Carvey genuinely cracked him up.
1: I agree that that, that is, that's one of the few times that I can think of on film that you see somebody naturally responding with, with a, a belly laugh.
0: Yeah. And it's one of those laughs where he laughs and then it kind of hits him again. And then he really (laughs) starts laughing and it's, it's a really natural laugh. And there's not a moment in this movie like this. In fact, most of the movie is Garth doing his own thing while Wayne does his. And there's not a lot of screen time of them significantly doing stuff together.
1: No, not at all. So, uh, Wayne and Garth go to city hall to get a permit from, uh, Kevin Pollack um, who's very talented in his own right in this scene. Pollock is wearing dark sunglasses and he's working indoors. So do me a favor, just put that image up on the shelf and we'll pull that down here in a couple of minutes to uh, address that as yet another joke that is set up and paid off. But during the, the conversation between Wayne and Garth and, and Pollock, he says that they can apply for their permit, not and it really illustrates how unfunny this joke is. Nobody did this better than, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen in, in Borat when he took the knot joke, you know, and just turned it inside out and upside down of, you know, this suit is black knot. And, Perfect. and I, I love that moment. I think about that. I think about that whenever I put on a black suit or I put on any dark colored suit. I mean, they're like, like the suit is black knot. Um, and then, uh, Pollock's performance here comes in a close second but Pollock points out the the stupidity of this joke but he doesn't land it you know kind of the way that that borat does but anyway back back to our shitty movie so uh i <laughs> not you know, about ke- good
0: comedians Kevin-
1: <laughs> let's get back to, the, to these crappy ones or at least crappy in this movie. So Pollock, um, he asks a fellow office worker named Betty Jo, uh, for, uh, permit applications. And Betty Jo is played by Olivia, uh, Diabo. Yeah. I, I think it's Ice her name. Who,
0: who was a great villainess on that, uh, criminal intent, that law and order.
1: She was the princess in Conan the Destroyer, and she was the blonde older sister from the Wonder Years. And she actually later appeared, um, in the Dana Carvey movie Clean Slate, which is arguably worse than this movie, if you can believe that, um, but in this she's dressed as a female version of Garth, and she is a lovely actress. And in this movie, she's doing her best to look kind of nerdy and homely, and it's kind of this like G-rated uh, Charlie Theron monster, you know, type ugly transformation.
0: It's it's like if you had a Garth Ray. And turned it on a perfectly lovely woman and garthed her, this would be the result yeah.
1: and you know, and we've seen this before where you kind of have an unconventional character who sees another character that looks and acts like them, and we, as the audience are to think uh you know with so much in common, you know these two will end up together and I just want to let you know, like without question, you know, based on what I know about the character of Garth and his spontaneous orgasms is just his like general love of. Fireman pulled dick rubs and I don't know what I'm going to presume is kind of like a like, you know, a penchant for for masturbating to Sports Illustrated swimsuit issues. There's the last thing I want to do is see him have sex with a woman that is almost a mirror image of himself, you know, like grassy yellow hair, horn rim glasses, the crooked jaw and everything. I do not want to see that.
0: And and this movie does. It, it assumes that because they look like one another there is chemistry between them that they are both narcissistic and and also deeply codependent in a way that they' it's not love at first sight it's like I have to I have to have you in my life because you are me
1: I yeah I guess Betty Joe recognizes Wayne from his show and like there's not even like a thank you is uttered. He's just a dick.
0: Right, at least, you know, as you mentioned in in the intro, the, you know, thank you. Like there was that in the original film. And it yeah, it it's a simple thing, but it's like, yeah, he should be this incredibly sweet and vulnerable character, not just a mis- a horny misfit. <laughs>
1: It's like this, like, you know, 96 uh, year old, uh, you know, man suffering from arrested development. Right. He got his testicles fell and pubes popped out, you know, <laughs> on his 93rd birthday.
0: He's the ugly Matthew McConaughey from uh, Dazed and Confused. Like if that guy, uh, instead of being Matthew McConaughey, were Dana Carvey that, you know, I get older, and they stay the same age.
1: Schwing. If that was the case, Garth would just be in jail. You know, I think Matthew McConaughey gets a pass just because he's good looking, and in this movie, that's not (laughs) real. Because
0: the high school girls kind of want to fuck him. Whereas Garth, on the other hand, totally rejected. He just keeps following them.
1: Because he keeps pointing his like boner at (laughs) passing women. Like it's a divining rod.
0: Yeah. There's that scene where like literally he's at the corner of a bar and interrupts his own conversation with swing, swing, swing. Like, like his dick is some sort of radar that is constantly detecting new bogeys.
1: Female Garth, uh, drops off the, the permit for the concert. And it looks like that contract from Stroker ace. It's like three, four, 500 pages. And that's funny. Um, and, uh, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go back to the shelf and take that mental image you put up there of Kevin Pollack uh, wearing uh, unusually dark sunglasses indoors uh, down. And we're going to kind of deal with that joke now. So Pollock takes his sunglasses off and we see that he has a condition in one of his eyes that he says is partial ocular. Uh, he's a partial ocular albino. His left eye has no pigment on the inside. And then Wayne and Garth are unable to keep themselves from making embarrassing statements that, you know, continue to draw attention to his eye. They say things like, you know, I'd give my left eye to hold this concert. Um, uh, I have an eye for detail, and and what I thought about when I watched this because I hadn't seen this movie in years. I think I saw it once a long time ago. Is that Myers kind of dust this bit off in Austin Powers Gold Member when he's talking with Fred Savage? I forget, you know,
0: the mole gag. When he, when yeah, start- it's it's, it's right. way better in that movie.
1: It is, but it's but it's essentially the same joke. Oh, and then yeah. I was like, wait, hey, Fred Savage? He was in, he was in the Wonder Years, and Olivia uh, Duval was in the Wonder Years. What's going on here? That's weird. You know. We- Where's, where's that other nerdy kid? Oh, maybe he was in the background at the Aerosmith concert. just was wandering
0: around. The one who grew had, up to be know, Marilyn Manson. Do
1: mm-hmm. You know what he did.
0: Um,
1: I did one, one joke, one joke that did make me laugh again of the, the three that, <laughs> that I can cite in this film is at the end of it, when they made all these bad, you know, eye remarks, uh, the last joke is, uh, Wayne says, we will review the permit details and cross the T's and dot the lowercase J's. I was like, that was a smart joke. That was funny.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, talk about low bars, sure. So,
1: so these two idiots need uh, $5,000 to file the permit. They don't have it, but they say they do because. Again, Wayne's no stranger to lying, and then we cut to this next scene where Wayne is in bed with Cassandra, not in a sexy way. It's like they just made it up kind of way. And here he also recycles a bit that's later used, or he later recycles this bit in, from Austin Powers, where he's like, "Oh, I fell over. Oh, I fell over." He does that in I don't know one of those. Films, he does it in Wayne's world that. too.
0: It's when he's in his underwear.
1: Yeah, well, but it's it's again. It's like why are you using these same bits over and over? I think oh, that's just, just how he fucks. Lazier. he's like oh i fell over and then um you know like "Uh uh-oh you're pregnant Uh
0: uh-huh oh beth i'm falling over oh i'm (laughs) falling over assuming his wife's name is beth i fell over so much i made a baby in you
1: wayne asks cassandra why she dates him and she says because he's a nice guy not a jerk i disagree and how do i know that is because like two three sentences later wayne accuses cassandra of sleeping with christopher walken and uh she says she's not then this is kinda of gets weird. She says that if that the record deal falls through, she's gonna lose her visa and go back to Hong Kong. I don't know how that
0: works. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've Maybe. never heard of a struggling musician visa being issued no. of like, hey, we're gonna give you two years to work the streets or whatever.
1: See? She's in Aurora, Illinois. Like <laughs> <Right>? like
0: <laughs> you're not even in LA or New York or something.
1: I think, I think if she takes a good look at her visa, like it was made with, with crayons and construction paper.
0: But again, it's the real shrug of the logic of this movie, which wouldn't matter if the movie were as over the top as it should be, you know?
1: Why wouldn't she just marry Wayne? I mean, why isn't that a a, a point here? Like they don't even bring that up. I mean, we're kind of getting into weddings later on, but why wouldn't that be introduced here? And and I know why, because this was written at three o'clock in the morning, you know, with two guys outside with a blackjack and a like a bottle of chloroform, if anybody tried to escape before, you know, 91 pages
0: were done. <laughs> also because the potential fiancé here, potential husband, is the guy that is falling on top of you and then two sentences later accusing you of having an affair. He doesn't seem like a stable life partner just yet. No. This is this is not a good movie. <laughs> no, no, it turns out it's not. Because again, none of this stuff with Cassandra really matters. It it it's recycled from the first movie. It distracts like the whole Christopher Walken Cassandra storyline is just, you know, the Rob Lowe stuff from the original film. And it just doesn't need to be here. Like she should be his partner for this as he's trying to mount this show. We don't need to have their relationship in jeopardy again because if you remember earlier in the film we stated the theme which is that not that cassandra is a problem it's that no he needs to figure out what it is he wants to do with his life and that thing begins with this show sorry i get frustrated (laughs) and all of this feels just very secondary
1: you know your comment earlier about how little screen time wayne and garth have together i mean in fact all of the characters nobody really has a lot of screen time with one another it's kind of weird and then in this scene we make references to a hair shampoo commercial and a calgon laundry commercial and i guess they're meant to be jokes but again they're just sort of like pop culture references of like oh yeah like i i know that thing i've seen that on tv before and now i'm seeing it in a movie that's a thing
0: right it's it's the lowest hanging fruit. It, it's hey, we here's a we need to do a joke about laundry. I just said something about laundry. What about that commercial, ancient Chinese secret, huh? What's funny about that? Fuck it, who cares? Let's just write it down.
1: Did you think it was weird that Cassandra was doing Wayne's laundry? Very. Like I don't understand. I don't even Here's like I don't even understand how the hell that's happening because it's not the question of like the fact that she's doing his laundry. I think that the issue is that Wayne only has one shirt, one pair of pants, and, and he's wearing them in this scene. I don't know if she's even washing. I folded all your black shirts, Campbell. All of them? <laughs> like, he's got one. That's it. He wears it until. Somebody uh, gives him a new one for his birthday. So now we cut to Garth and he's at the laundromat washing what I'm guessing is his single plaid shirt because he's sitting, you know, on a washer or dryer and his jeans and his Led Zeppelin T-shirt. And then in walks Kim Basinger in some really, you know, sexy clothes with uh, sexy music. And she starts folding underwear and she eats a Twizzler candy in a very sexy fashion, which I just want to say that Twizzlers are disgusting. I think they are lightly sweetened, soft red plastic that is somehow edible. Um, to call them a candy is just a disservice to candy everywhere.
0: So yeah. getting down on no, that I, I'm with you. Uh, Twizzlers, Licorice in general. Uh, and I'll tell you what, while we're at it, you can keep uh, saltwater taffy.
1: Across the board. I wholly agree with that. That's a plank in uh, our platform. I'll tell you
0: what, jelly beans are on that list too, sir. Agreed.
1: Kim Basinger introduces herself as Honey Hornet. And that's another staple of Mike Myers movies is that they're riddled with characters that have funny sounding names in theory. So it's like, you know, that she's horny or whatever. So (laughs) she starts folding panties and she's sucking on red plastic candy. And and Garth is just having spasms of, of sexual delight. And then uh, she and Kim Basinger and Garth are talking and and uh, Basinger asks him, "Would you like to have dinner some night?" And Garth says, "Oh, I like to have dinner every night." That joke made me laugh. It felt more like a Marx Brothers line uh-huh. than something out of this movie, so i'm I'm sure that they probably stole it or you know.
0: Like, I, I feel like that was something. in the trailer. Like that was one of the jokes that they were like, hey, this one's good.
1: <laughs> I don't put asses in this. Uh-huh.
0: This seems like something this character might say.
1: Yeah, because remember he's really smart, but he's not in this one. So so she asked Garth on a date, and he says something that's not yes. But it's not, no, I don't know. And he leaves the laundromat. And then we've established this whole B plot, which from what I read was um, spun up because Garth had so little time on screen. I mean, this adds a few more minutes and I think it pads the runtime of the film. It goes nowhere, as you will hear us discuss later. But that's the setup of that. We cut the next scene and Christopher Walken tells Cassandra that he asked her to get to L.A. to finish his album. And she says that she likes uh, it in Aurora, which what the hell is that? She's from Hong Kong. She has no ties to this community. I I don't believe that she loves Wayne at all. Again, to your point earlier, we never see them together. She hasn't done or said anything that implies that. Maybe, like, I don't know, doing his laundry might be an act of love. But I think maybe she's just keeping Wayne around in case the thing with, you know, Christopher Walken falls through. Right.
0: He's a real dick in a jar kind of situation. I, I guess. Where it's like, hey, until I know for sure that this Walken thing is concrete. I'm going to keep him around to the credit of the character a little bit. We establish in the first film that she loves Wayne. And even in this film, we've had a conversation where she says, look, the reason I love you is because you're silly. And in this scene, uh, she tells Christopher Walken, like they start watching the Wayne's world show. She turns it on while they're, you know, in the production booth or whatever. And Walken is like, justifiably he asks, You know, like, what do you see in this guy? And she says, you know, he's just he's not completely ambition driven. He's a little silly. He's a little fun. And I like that. If I wanted a guy that was nothing but his career, then I could have had that in Hong Kong. That's as much justification as we need. But her saying that also makes the rest of the movie not make sense for what happens to her character.
1: No, not at all. Cassandra tells Walken, she's like, don't underestimate them. They're really sharp. And Walken just immediately calls bullshit on that. And he's right. Right. <laughs> like, and then in this, in this episode that they're watching, uh, Wayne's World on TV, uh, Mike Myers is doing what is, you know, tantamount to a Shrek impersonation before Shrek was a twinkle in DreamWorks eye. And his Shrek impersonation is, is a, like a leprechaun impersonation, which is scaring the shit out of Garth, which, no one's surprised by that. But then Wayne keeps doing it and then he tamps it down to, you know, get Garth to come in off the ledge and then he cranks it back up again to scare his friend. Again, just Wayne's a dick.
0: Yeah. He's being a jerk to his closest friend. Yes. That on TV. Yeah. That is, that is the reality of this scene. You are correct.
1: <laughs> so uh we're back in the warehouse uh where wayne lives and and does his show and cassandra shows up and she's wearing this conservative silk red you know asian style dress and her father is there earlier she had mentioned she wanted wayne to meet her father uh wayne is there in his shirt his hat his pants and he he he's looking like he should be i don't know working like the, the like the day shift bar back at a bw3 uh wayne tells cassandra in front of her dad like you look hot and then we get a really good Canadian apology of a sorry. Right. Uh, which I always enjoy that.
0: Sure. <laughs> yeah. It's like if you see a Canadian eating waffles or pancakes, it's like, ah, there they are in their natural habitat.
1: If I know someone's Canadian and uh, they're reading a book, I'll ask them, what's that book called a boot? And then they usually give me the finger. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not how we talk, jerk. You don't know what you're talking about. Wayne speaks
1: uh, in Cantonese to her father. Her father asks Wayne to call him Jeff, and this joke is played out the way it should have been played out. When we like the Father Dave joke, you know, see our episode on the end in the uh, Turt Ferguson season, is it's really funny because he's speaking, you know, fluent Cantonese, and then there's a pause, and it's and then he throws in Jeff, and he delivers it well. It's it's a funny, I don't know, gag in the movie that kind of carries through.
0: Yeah, but then it goes to again the late, it's the low hanging fruit of, hey, what would be funny in a scene where Wayne interacts with a fellow from Hong Kong? Oh, wait, what if they decide that their voices are going to be overdubbed in kung fu movie style? And then we continue that joke and actually have them fight with kung fu sound effects and stuff like that, like from the uh, the Shaw Brothers films and stuff like that.
1: Do you know how this? the only way that this scene is genuinely funny... Is if you were to go back in time and murder Michael Winslow when he was six years old. I'm not condoning that, but that's the only way it works because his performance in police academy doing the mismatched dub voices is kind of the, the, the precedent for what's going on here. I mean, that, that, that became a thing in police academy. Maybe the original Police Academy, I believe he did it, where, you know, he's kind of putting on the headband and he's speaking in an Asian accent with his lips moving, you know, miss synced. But in this, it's just, it's like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen this before. Yeah. But again, to your point there, they're, they're flip flopping around and they're, they're fighting each other. And Wayne kicks her dad in the dick so hard that two brass balls fall out, which I was like, did he have like testicle implants or
0: something like that? I, I don't they know. They were Ben but, uh, wobbles that fell out of his ass. <laughs>
1: Now that makes a lot more sense. Thank you very much. Yeah.
0: Again, I do fan fiction for all these movies to explain (laughs) little details like that.
1: Wayne wins the fight. Her dad's impressed. And he's in good with him because he can beat up an old man so bad that uh, Benoit balls fall out of his his asshole and pant legs. There's now going to be a fundraiser for Wayne Stock at this communist bar called Comrades with a K. I don't understand why there's a fundraiser for a concert. I thought that's just called buying a ticket.
0: Right. It, we're going to put on a party. You're going to buy a ticket. Therefore we will raise funds.
1: Yeah. But, but, but you're not, you, have you ever gone to a concert? It's like, Hey, I need you to come here to give me money to put on the concert. And then when you go to the concert, you have to give me more money to see the show. That doesn't make any sense. That's just stupid. Yeah. That's, you know, maybe, maybe this is like a, maybe this is a, a like an early form of Kickstarter. <laughs> or as I like to call it, panhandling or begging. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. But it's the way business is conducted, right? You, you have a good or service, in this case, putting on a show. Wayne puts on a small show. It does well. Now he's got the money to put on his big show. It should matter to the movie and it should have a bit more urgency because it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. You need $5,000 and that's why we're having this scene.
1: This isn't a mini show. This isn't but this isn't a mini show. This is just people going to a bar and they're giving him money. There's no entertainment there. There's like a DJ. Look,
0: I mix I mix in some of the movie I want with some of the movie that is. It's just how I roll. It's a, it, like, I have to make sense of this movie because otherwise we go like H.P. Lovecraft insane.
1: So all of our, the characters from the movie are at this comrade's party. Chris Farley shows up for an unnecessary reason. Um, Christopher Walken.
0: I, I do think this is a pretty good joke though of uh, him bearing his soul to them and then saying, I'm going to go pick a fight and then peeling off and they're like, yeah, th- he seems better. I think that's a funny joke,
1: relatively speaking. I guess so. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, I just, I, I just, I was like, like, "There's Chris Farley," you know. I was like, "Hey, later, he's gonna be Shrek, but then he's gonna die from being so, you know, great, big, and fat, and then that guy's gonna be Shrek. That's gonna be, that's crazy." I'm looking at both Shreks at the same time. But oh, and, yeah, you
0: know, I didn't think about that. That's eerie.
1: I know two Shreks. In the same movie. Christopher Walken and Cassandra, again, they show up. And uh, Cassandra says Walken's taking her to Los Angeles to fulfill her life dream of finishing her album. Wayne, in turn, is a pouty, selfish, you know, asshole about it. And then we cut to the scene you mentioned earlier where Garth is talking to some guy at the bar. And he keeps saying, swing, and thrusting his crotch at women as they walk by. Again, if I saw someone who looked to be... You know, forty-seven years old doing this real life, I would immediately think that they had escaped some kind of a home. They had Tourette's, or, or
0: that because all right, I don't know if I ever told you this story, and and perhaps it'll get cut out. Well, I when I was uh, a kitchen manager at a, a pizza place years ago, there was a guy that worked in the kitchen with us who legitimately had Tourette syndrome, and his particular tick was that if you were talking to him, if you were kind of engaged with him. His head would jut forward and he would kind of chomp his teeth together as if he was going to bite you. But he never got close enough to, if that makes sense. As much as it can. Well, I mean, but you get the motion, right? It was kind of a lunge and a, you know, but without the noise. That had to be odd. But, you know, it only happened every now and again. And it was kind of no big deal after a while. It's just a thing, right? Like people is people and some of them are weird and that was a weird thing. But he was a great guy.
1: But cut. are you th- are are you theorizing that that Garth has Tourette's and his thing is that he throws his dick your way and says schwing?
0: Well, this is where the story ties in somewhat because a a pretty young waitress had recently been hired and and this guy with Tourette's we will call him Jeff for the for the sake of the story is, was that his real name? No. It was Jason. So Jason <laughs> is talking to this pretty waitress and she, like I said, she's new and he does the tick. He lunges forward and kind of chomps and she freaks out kind of understandably. Right. If somebody did that to you out of the blue. Absolutely. And Jason turns to me in a panic. And is like, Oh my God. No, it's a, it's Tourette's. I'm so sorry. Bo, will you please tell her? What that that this happens time to time that I'm not I'm not being a freak. And my response to him was, I don't know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, that's what you should have said.
0: <laughs> but yes, if you told me that Garth had Tourette's in his particular tick was the swing as ladies pass by. I would kind of buy that in this movie. That's what it seems to be.
1: Yeah, I'd like you want to watch like, like Garth on his own. I'd like, I'd watch a standalone Garth movie with Dana Carvey playing him right now, (laughs) like at at age like 71.
0: Right. He's like a physicist or something, you know, like he really got his shit together and became a scientist. I could do this Garth movie. I was going to say
1: he's just like a jizz mopper in an adult bookstore, (laughs) you know, just like like, you know, swing, swing. He
0: becomes Walter (laughs) from Breaking Bad. He just uses all his genius to make drugs.
1: So let's get back to our movie. So we're at this this party uh at Comrades and then Cassandra gets on the dance floor with Christopher Walken and she's all but like fucking him on the dance floor. Like somehow her legs are wrapped around him and yet she's still able to stand up. And again, if this was my girlfriend, I would do two things. One, I would immediately realize that our relationship is over. And two, I would make an appointment at a VD clinic. That's number one. That's number two i don't know what number three is i would <laughs> i'd be sad
0: uh, yeah i would start with crying that would be my move
1: <laughs> what well, was my number
0: three i I'm see sorry. that's top of the charts for me of just like oh uh, another punch in the face from life thanks god and then just niagara falls frankie
1: <laughs> so wayne and garth returned to city hall uh, with the permit and the money from the fundraiser uh female garth Uh, is there, uh, so we don't lose that, you know, mental image of the two of them having sex, uh, with each other and somehow, uh, with themselves at the same time. And then, uh, we then cut to a scene where Wayne and his friends are, uh, spying on Cassandra to get what I feel is unnecessary proof that she's fucking Christopher Walken because we have proof. It was on the dance floor the night before. You don't dance with a guy the way she's dancing with him. It was, it was very sexy. Yeah.
0: Guilty feet have got no rhythm. I think (laughs) wham taught us all that Chad.
1: So this scene again is another one of those, those jokes that is just set up just for the punchline. So Wayne Garth and these two long hair friends of theirs are in disguises as a construction worker, a policeman, a sailor, and a biker. You can see where all this is going. Cassandra spots Wayne in his disguise, presumably because Wayne is wearing his pair of jeans, his black shirt, and the only thing that makes him look different is a yellow construction hat and this big uh, handlebar mustache. And then Wayne and the team kind of run off, and they end up going into a, what we're going to find out is a gay bar called the Toolbox. Walken follows them, you know, into the bar in pursuit to see what they're up to. And to the movie's credit, there is no I'm in a you know good 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 gay bar yeah get me out of here nobody shows
0: disgust it was surprisingly okay. You know, it was just because
1: it's Christopher Walken. Even if they told him to do it, it would have just been like, like you want me to pretend to be upset? I'm in a gay bar. Like, what is wrong with you?
0: And they're they're here. all dancing and having a good time. You say, I don't see the problem. I refuse to song do it. I'm a
1: dance man myself. Would be a little, little soft shoot?
0: I'll tell you what. Is there a way you can get me on that stage? No, not for this one. <laughs> all right. Can I leave the movie for about thirty minutes?
1: Puts his hand on the shoulder. Does the throwback later today. A cold front's coming through. You should wear a sweater. <laughs> I do a, I do a terrible walk-in. So I, 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 God is
0: my witness. It is, it, it's sort of like being able to, to sing like Freddie Mercury. It's one of those things I really wish I could do. I just can't do a walk-in. <laughs> worth this shit.
1: One thing uh, in this scene, they're up on stage. And of course, because they look like the village people, um, the DJ starts playing YMCA and they're doing that. And one little unexpected touch of the naked Indian shows up. I don't know if that was... You know, part of the gag that they were writing. But it, it it it's funny. You know, it works well that he kind of shows up as this invisible, mystical character.
0: Well, I think this whole scene in terms of it being, other than the fact that he was just spying on his girlfriend like a creep. Lo- putting that aside for, for the time. It's kind of a fun Looney Tunes scene. And uh, as I keep saying, that's what this movie ought to be. It's what it, when it works best is when it's just being silly and kind of over the top. And even this scene where they're doing YMCA, it's not great, but it's something happening.
1: Honestly, in, in watching this a couple of times and, and doing the, the setup for this particular episode, I just think that they didn't have any passion for making this movie. And it comes across in the film, especially the I watched it and then I went in and sort of dug a little deep for the, the introduction and the movie made more sense after understanding the history of it. And sort of understanding why there is such a tepid amount of energy and chemistry, it really feels like they're just meeting an obligation, which arguably they were. Sure,
0: sure. But it, it, you're right. It does come through. And, and there is a general, not to quote Carter, <laughs> kids ask your grandparents about Jimmy Carter, but there is a general malaise to this film that feels like there's con- you're constantly pushing the rock uphill. There's never a moment of momentum in the movie at all where one good scene flows into the next, even for two or three scenes where you start to feel like things are picking up and there's a flow.
1: No, it, it doesn't. It just sort of choppily, you know, stitches things together, which as a segue to our next scene, Wayne now breaks up with Cassandra in an overly dramatic you know, kind of Mike Myers fashion, she objects, and then he presses the issue so far that he shows her uh photos of Cassandra with Christopher Walken in public. I don't know why they're in black and white. I guess, you know, maybe it's kind of a noir aspect to it. And I was like, I'd get color. That's just me, but <laughs> nobody right. asked me. Um, she's all pissed off that he spied on her. And then she punches Wayne so hard that he has to go to the hospital. He's in the back of an ambulance. And I mean this had to be a real serious injury to call you know, medical support. And I don't know, like I've seen a lot of people, not a lot. I've seen people get, you know, like punched and beaten up and and stuff like that. But I can't imagine any like self-respecting conscious man would get in an ambulance after getting punched just once, whether it was by a man or a woman, right? Like, you know, be like, like, I'm good. I can walk this off. And also how did Wayne pay the hospital bills? I mean, if you have an ambulance call and the the, the subsequent financial responsibility of going to the hospital, that's going to be in the thousands of dollars. This dude's a deadbeat. He did not have any money. You and
0: me, Chad. That's who's footing the bill for this. And lip tarts like Wayne sucking the country dry. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks a lot, Uncle Sucker.
0: <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Take take that, people from season one that said we were snowflakes. Now you're Thanks on our a side,
1: Obama. <laughs> <laughs> So then we see Dell. Remember him, the roadie guy we talked about earlier. He's training a bunch of people in this montage. It's not funny. They're playing Spirit in the Sky while they shoot tennis balls at people and they have to pick up a microphone that falls over. Again, it's just padding of the runtime of this film. Wayne goes over and yells at Chris Farley and uh you know asks him, you know, why are you here? Why don't you go home? And Farley screams back, Because I don't have anywhere else to go. Which for those who haven't seen it, this is a scene from Officer and a Gentleman. And now I've been reminded of two movies I would rather be watching, Jurassic Park and Officer and a Gentleman, okay? Please stop giving me movies that I would much rather be enjoying than watching Wayne's World 2.
0: Although I still argue this is what the movie ought to be. Like, this training sequence, ought to, it ought to be a string of silly gags about them getting ready to put on the show. Again, you know, because we're going to forget all about this a scene later, it never feels like anything is urgent about this. Like, yes, now we've got the permit, but how long is it before we're putting on the show? Is it a week? Is it two weeks? I don't even remember. Do they even say? Like, it feels... No. We should be on a timer here.
1: Nope, they don't say. It doesn't matter. I think at the heart of the movie is just kind of
0: how Wayne is just this desperate, needy baby man. Right. And, yeah, who who only wants Cassandra after he's broken up with her and he sees her with someone else. Like there is an emotional immaturity to this character that is probably accurate, but is also not what you want to see out of a protagonist in a film or protagonist for students.
1: (laughs) So then we cut to Kim Basinger and Garth. They're entering um, her home. If you remember that B plot from, you know, 20, 30 minutes ago and Basinger, Brings Garth in the house. She turns on a fire. She makes a drink. It's just one for Garth. And he sips it and he spits it out. He's like, this Coke is bad. And she laughs at his joke. I I don't know. Just his comment. As noted earlier, Garth never does anything related to his intellect. I mean, it's just, it's really weird. He's just kind of this like simpleton in it, which is so counter to the first one, I guess. And then Kim Basinger grabs Garth's dick and she starts wiggling her ass in front of him in this, you know, very short like cocktail dress And there's some like light canoodling and it's, for me, it was very uncomfortable. It's like, this is kind of gross. And then she grabs Garth's ass and he falls down, hurts his hand and she starts sucking his fingers. And then, you know, Danny Carvey in in this moment, he's like trying to be like, you know, awkward as this very attractive woman is sucking his, you know, his individual fingers. And he starts just spouting off these phrases. Like I taught, I taught, putty tat. And he says like, you know, boldly go where no one's gone before. I was like, what the hell is this? This is the best you can come up with is just sort of like these chaotic pinball comments of, I don't like your youth of cartoons and Star Trek or something. Is that what's going on there?
0: I mean, your guess is as good as mine, Chad. I have no idea. I don't know what this character is doing here. There's a kiss that happens here in this scene. Right. That reminds me of those still frames from Ren and Stimpy cartoons. Where like they zoom in on a carbuncle or something and it's just drawn in the most hideous (laughs) possible way. It's kind of that when Garth and Kim Casing, uh, Kim Basinger's character finally kiss. It's just the most disgusting possible thing. And it's not even funny. It's just the whole scene is gross. And this is the moment where it's like Dana Carvey looks like he is a, a million years old in this scene and he is kissing Kim Basinger and he's supposed to be a teenager question mark <sighs> I I hate this movie I think
1: <laughs> Yeah it's really bad and when he kisses her his lips if i remember this correctly his whole body is is perpendicular to her standing up and then he falls to the ground which is like so is this is this like you know cartoon physics of what's going on but at this point you just you just don't care at all Basinger then picks up Garth like a like he's a new bride and she carries him in the bedroom, presumably again to have sex. And at this one, the the first time I rewatched this, I, I've had a thought. I was like, "Does she have a dick? Like, is that a like is this a dude maybe or something?" Like, I wasn't exactly sure, and I'm not sure even you know if that's even ultimately explained because you know the next scene Garth comes out, he's you know freshly fucked and he does some Cary Grant impression wearing a a smoking jacket and he has an ascot and he's got a pipe in his mouth and he blows bubbles out of the pipe, which again was a joke that I had already seen when Bart Simpson did it, when he visited the grotto owned by Hugh Hefner.
0: Yeah. The Simpsons did it first, you know,
1: they they
0: always did it first.
1: So we're in the home stretch of this, if you can believe it or not, because we haven't touched on any of the, the, the plot points of this film. We then cut to uh, uh, Garth and Wayne playing indoor hockey uh, on the, you know, next to the set of their show, Wayne's World. You remember that they had a show, maybe not, because I kind of forgot. And uh, Garth tells Wayne that he had sex. Wayne doesn't really care, or he doesn't believe him. Either way, he shows no interest. Again, Wayne's kind of a dick and is not a good friend at all. We then cut to a scene where Dell is giving instructions to the roadies about their jobs, and it involves like gun turrets and uh, cyanide capsules. And that's kind of the moment where you kind of feel like this character is really veering into the the extreme strangeness that you really wanted from this character, uh-huh, but uh-huh. it it doesn't go anywhere. And it, but his delivery is like, "We've all got cyanide capsules, and we're gonna put them in our mouth." And it's just, I don't know. He should have just gotten. If you start as as a sleepy turtle at the end, he should have just been, you know, this rabid Wolverine, you know, of a crazy person.
0: It should have been Johnny Depp's Jack Sparrow performance yeah it should have been that ostentatious and what do you mean you've never heard of me you know it, it should have been kind of a, a bit of a braggart but also not all there because of years of drugs and like the character was almost there enough to almost make this movie okay that's the whole you're describing the whole film. You're describing every character a moment. It's almost it's all
1: almost there. It's all almost just enough to make it good. And oh, it's, it's just
0: not. And, not. and I apologize if I'm getting ahead. But speaking of the thing that's almost there, like the next scene is is the payoff to the handsome Dan joke, by the way, for true nerds in the audience. Every time they mentioned handsome Dan, I thought of Skipper Dan. Just a thing.
1: I thought about Cowboy Dan, the balloon tying man.
0: From Parenthood. Oh, that's not bad either.
1: <laughs> so let's let's just let's jump ahead because before we get to Handsome Dan, I want to talk about Drew Barrymore. Oh, oh, so, oh fair enough. So they go to this radio station to promote the concert, and Drew Bo- Drew Barrymore is there, and she's playing this Swedish receptionist. And then there's some some classic Mike Myers wordplay that you talked about a little earlier, and it just sounds like the Swedish chef talking. It's a lot of schmorgan. <laughs> this is the whole scene,
0: right? Yeah, and I think Drew Barrymore is kind of bad in this. I'm I'm not a big Drew Barrymore fan as a rule. But in this film in particular, like even this little cameo, it's just like her Swedish accent is like that stupid Dracula impression I did earlier.
1: (laughs) But but the whole scene is also full of all these random facts which reminded me of the Alice Cooper scene in the original Wayne's World. For some reason at the end, Barrymore says that she wants to fuck Wayne. I don't know. I can't explain that. Um, But again, my third laugh of the film um, is at the very end of this when Wayne tells her that he had done a report on Sweden when he was a kid and then later got diarrhea on the trampoline. That was funny.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's all right. But we go from that to – and this is the moment of you need to make this joke clearer. Which is, they go to meet Handsome Dan. It turns out it's uh Ted from Married with Children, who is a handsome guy. And they're like, oh, Handsome Dan. And he's like, I'm not Handsome Dan. That's Handsome Dan. And it's Harry Shearer. And as you said earlier, I don't want to impugn Harry Shearer's looks. And in fact, I'm kind of sticking up for it here. Which is, he should look worse. Because Handsome Dan just looks yeah, like he- a guy... But he needs to have something fucked up on his face or something
1: (laughs) for the joke to really
0: sell, you know, of like, oh, my God, he's really not handsome. As opposed to, yes, I suppose there are women who would find him very handsome, you know? (laughs)
1: Like, I feel like I'm a little
0: related to him where I'm like, he's not so bad.
1: He's got a great personality. In the right light, he's handsome, Dan. Maybe you should just change
0: his name to the Well, name. but it's not like he's Ugly Dan, I guess, is my problem. He's just Dan.
1: <laughs> they go in to have a conversation with Handsome Dan about uh, the the concert, and uh, Dan is not paying attention to them. He's Between every sentence they say, promoting Wayne Stock, he's saying, uh-huh, mm uh-huh, uh-huh. And then uh, Wayne and Garth just start spouting off crazy stuff. That he agrees to, and again, I'm I'm not going to go any more into the bit because it's it's not much funnier yeah. than really what I'm what I'm describing. And, it, and
0: it's, it's just the recycled gag from the original movie, only instead of them making fun of Brian Doyle Murray on the backs of the cards, it's them saying it, it's them getting one over on the man in quotes you mean the guy
1: the, the guy who's giving them what free advertising for their concert
0: right or their sponsor you can swap it out because that was kind of a jerk move in the original <laughs> movie too but right yeah
1: you're just you're just a dick yeah yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> we should put some echo on that it's like the ghost of reynolds past or something
1: <laughs> wayne tries to reach cassandra and and he, uh, ends up calling Christopher Walken, uh, with a phone number he got on the back of a business card. And then Walken blows her off. And uh, again, as you noted earlier, this is probably the only behavior that is, is probably, you know, somewhat, I don't know, sinister, but it's not even that. He's like, have you seen Cassandra? He's like, no, I haven't seen her. We're in Los Angeles finishing, you know, an album. And as we're going to see in a minute, I'm getting ready to get her miraculously on the Tonight Show. Like, you know what? I don't have time to deal with you. You know, I I think that you might have a a job cleaning out the the dumpsters waiting for you. Cassandra comes out and she sees Christopher walk, and they leave to go to have lunch in Los Angeles, which I'm sure is delightful. And there's a weird thing. Did you notice there was a toaster behind uh Wayne that had smoke coming out of it during this scene? <laughs> I don't know what was going on there. Maybe
0: maybe he dies. There's some like fan theory that oh, he dies in this scene and the rest of the movie is his like death throes.
1: I was just thinking it like, like this guy's so incompetent. He can't even fucking make toast. What a shithead.
0: We'll get to toast what? in the next movie.
1: <laughs> so Wayne has a, a, a second dream uh with the Indian and Jim Morrison, who is now talking to Sammy Davis jr. Played by Saturday night live uh, veteran uh, Tim Meadows. There's no reason that he should be in this movie whatsoever. Wayne tells, uh, Jim Morrison, there's, there's, you know, no bands that are coming. No tickets have been sold. And Morrison says, you know, if you book them, they will come again. Stop referencing movies that I want to see that are better than this one. In this case, Field of Dreams for the uninitiated. Please go, uh, go see that movie. If you haven't, uh, it's uh it's very, very good. It makes you want to call It'll your dad. It'll make you cry.
0: Yeah, nah.
1: It does. It'll make you cry for all the right reasons. So Cassandra is with uh, Christopher Walken and Mr. Big from the first movie. And they are talking about being on The Tonight Show. This is a huge deal. You know, her career is taking off. She's in Los Angeles. She went from this, you know, shithole town to, you know, playing local gigs. Like she's about to have like a major album. And uh, she's told like, look, listen to Christopher Walken. You're going to go places. Your shitty life is over. This is everything she wants. And things are looking great for Cassandra. Wayne, however, goes back on Wayne's World and tells the audience that 10,000 tickets are still available and no bands have signed. Good going, stupid. You don't say that. (laughs) You say there's only a few left. Everyone's showing up. You build up demand. He's terrible at marketing.
0: You know what? Seats are filling up fast. That's all you got to say. You lie. You know, it's the gift, Chad, or the secret. You just, uh, you, you, you will a thing into being and uh that's 90% of marketing is just, Hey, this ought to trigger the suckers. And you know what doesn't trigger the suckers? Hey, this thing's going to be a failure. I know you've been hearing that and it looks like it is going to be.
1: It is. So Wayne sees Cassandra on the tonight show and he breaks the fourth wall. And just like in the first one, he says, Oh, she will be mine again. And uh again, because this is just, Pulling out pieces and part of the first but, one, and then just you know stitching them together. He
0: broke up with her. If this yeah. was all his idea, the only reason he wants her now is that, it, like when he first sees her, he's like, "Oh, she looks great." I just, oh, I gotta, I gotta put it in her again. You know, like <laughs> that is his whole motivation in this movie. It's not like at no point does he apologize to her for trying to interfere or even just make more difficult uh, her pursuit of uh, like the thing he was so excited for in the first movie. And even in this movie, in the early goings, when he's talking to Christopher Walken, he's like, well, you've, you've seen her and heard her. You know how great she is. And he goes from being a cheerleader of hers to a saboteur. Yeah. He's just a total jerk in this movie. Yeah. He's a dick. He really is.
1: Back, backst- backstage at the Tonight Show, you know, Cassandra's all jazzed as she should be. And then Christopher Walken walks up and asks her if she's considered, uh, what he asked her about. And then she says, Oh, give me a week. And is this in reference to the, ma- like, uh, the marriage proposal that kind of happens
0: later? I, is that what's going our, on here? Or maybe moving to LA? I don't know. Maybe the marriage. If it's a reference, I don't know.
1: If it's in reference to the marriage proposal, then look, that's a question that needs to be answered immediately. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't say, like, like, hi, will you like like I love you? Will you marry me? Can you give me a week? I really need
0: to think this one over.
1: Yeah, yeah, great. Just
0: save it. Just let me know. This is why I've never been married. That's that's constantly <laughs> my move. Give me a little bit to think about that. <laughs> I'll be right here. I'll I need right to here. do my pro con <laughs> list and really think about this. <laughs>
1: So we now uh, we're going to wrap up that B plot. Uh, we cut to Garth and he's with Kim Basinger and his hair is all combed like, like down and flat. He looks like, like Maria Bamford and uh, uh, Basinger Basinger tells him she needs Garth to kill her husband. My guess uh, again, is it not my guess? This is just ripped off from this Pamela smart incident of the nineties where this older woman, fucked this younger guy and convinced him to kill her husband. There was a movie called to die for, which is based on, I guess, that event. Uh Buck Henry wrote the screenplay for it. Gus Van Sant directed it. it came out ninety five.
0: Yeah, good movie. Uh, had
1: Nicole Kid- yeah, had Nicole Kidman and and Walking Phoenix in it. Again, quit mentioning better movies, or at least you know things that make me think of better movies than the-, the one that you know I'm watching right now. Basinger convinces Garth to kill her husband uh by putting her head in his crotch and making like want want blowjob noises. And then she gives Garth a gun and says, I want you to kill my husband. Garth leaves the house. He then drops the gun like in the bushes and then uh, goodbye, Kim Basinger. We're never going to see you again. Yeah. This is just this This whole storyline is, is thoroughly pointless. It's not funny. It just pads the runtime.
0: Right. It It makes the character feel inconsistent. And then when it's done, it's, totally disposed of it does not matter to the end of this movie in the least it does not change the character of garth in the least it is purely garbage and i and i i I, I, I don't think kim basinger is bad in this i think like when when she's doing the whole like oh don't even say kill him uh i i think that stuff is okay i think she's okay in this but to say it goes nowhere, I feel like undersells it. It is You could wholesale remove this from the film and you would never know it.
1: Yes. It's only there to, I, for, again, from what I understand, this whole scene or this whole storyline was only put into the movie to give Dana Carvey more screen time because he has very little otherwise. So, so Wayne is sitting on the stage, uh, of the concert, feeling shitty for himself. And, um, the Indian sits down beside him in some mystical way. And then Rip Taylor shows up and things are starting to turn around. Like, you know what? Well, who cares? You know, people are showing up for the concert. Why? Who knows? And then hippies start showing up for Wayne stock. And I thought about, you know, Woodstock 94 was happening around this time as well. So my guess is that this part of the script was ripped off from something else. And then Wayne says he needs to get musicians for the show to actually play. And he calls Cassandra and her dad answers the phone and says that she's marrying Christopher Walken and that the wedding is today. I was going to ask, where is this wedding taking place? Is it in California? Is it in Aurora? Is it in Hong Kong? Like unless she's pregnant, why would this be taking place within a couple of
0: days or a week? It it really is like a uh, hey place TBD. It's uh, you got to think it's somewhere around Aurora, but look, Aurora's in Illinois. They were in Los Angeles
1: yesterday, and they have a wedding like this. It doesn't make any sense,
0: Chad. I don't know, I, I and I have tried to piece this together to the best of my ability but the stuff they do with like okay they went to england and then they came back and now they're close enough so that they can put on this show because Cassandra and Bobby are in LA and Wayne can still drive there to break up the wedding and get back to the show in time but he said it was going to be in an aurora and that can't possibly be and then you like the bolts start twisting and turning here the creaking metal you know and the smoke just starts rising from my ears <laughs> i it frustrates me because these people were being paid good honest money to make a movie and if you can't bother to make it make a little bit of sense or just follow your own internal logic that's all just turn on
1: night of the living dead
0: and call it wayne's world Two, and we're good to go. you know go. what at this point in the movie if they had just been like throwing up their hands and saying fuck it here you go and like they're coming to get you barbara i would have <laughs> been totally fine i would have i would have told you that this was one of the better saturday night live adaptations
1: so wayne leaves the concert to go put a stop to the wedding garth's Girl twin shows up. And now since Garth knows how to have sex, he's all excited seeing her, which is weird because if I saw someone who looked just like me, but they were a girl, that's the last thing I'd want to do is fuck her. (laughs) It's like, like, no, thank you. Well,
0: (laughs) I, if I met someone who looked exactly like me, only the female version, I would be repulsed, not just unattracted. Like, I have enough self-hatred that if you showed me, like, a true external version of that, <laughs> the the antipathy I would have for this individual. <laughs> like, we wouldn't be able to be in the same city. If I ever saw him, I would be like, you go right to hell. Coming over clothing racks.
1: <laughs> It'd be like, uh, was it Raising Cain? Like, immediately, you'd be like, I'm going to murder yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah, like, like we both we both cannot walk the earth together.
0: Look, it's bad enough. One of us is here. I will not allow <laughs> to.
1: So uh, Wayne is in his car and then he crashes into those chickens and melons and glass that we talked about earlier. It's not funny. And then he steals a red convertible because now we're going to do a rip off of The Graduate again. Please stop making me think of better movies.
0: Can we stop one second uh, and then Wayne's- before we get into all this graduate <laughs> shit that goes on for 10 <laughs> sure. minutes? Sure. Wayne literally leaves the theme of the movie. They're putting (laughs) on the show. The thing uh, in the first 10 minutes, he says, I need to do this big thing. The big thing is happening. And because of this stupid shoehorned romance subplot, Wayne now has to leave the real movie to go to the B plot, which doesn't matter to anything do you think it would be like
1: if um when doc brown was uh stringing the cable across the street in preparation for the lightning bolt if he just suddenly said i gotta go take a shit
0: (laughs) if he said i gotta go help your would-be father with his science fiction novel i can't help you get back in time he needs a solid editor
1: and then we spend 10 minutes of him just turning the pages, reading through it. And if I could combine both of our scenarios, that's done on the toilet. Uh huh.
0: Great Scott, <laughs> a split infinitive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would love that.
0: <laughs> I, I love that this show is not above a, just a good old fashioned fart sound.
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Wayne, Wayne steals a red convertible and it's, On his way, he stops off at a gas station um, and asks for directions to the First Presbyterian Church on Gordon Street. And the gas station owner comes out and uh, tells him where the directions are. And then Wayne says, you know, this is kind of embarrassing. Don't we have a better actor to deliver this? And in walks Charlton Heston to take the actor's place and delivers the lines, arguably, in a more dramatic fashion.
0: Yeah. Another legitimate laugh for me is this scene where we go from mike myers looking like he appreciates charlton heston being there to delivery of heston's lines back to myers who now looks completely captivated back to heston and then back to myers who is now crying and i think that's a funny progression in this scene
1: it's a it's a funny bit it it works but again it it just like so many things in this movie it it sort of disrupts the the momentum of the film, like we're on our way. There's a, not to say like a racing against time, but he's in the car. He's going to stop the wedding. We do this, but it doesn't matter.
0: I also like the second Presbyterian church gag. I don't know that I'd seen a movie before. Do this joke.
1: Right. So, so what you're referring to is that Wayne gets to the church. He goes up, bangs on the glass and yells Cassandra and it's shot for shot remake of The Graduate. But when the people turn around they're at, he's at the wrong church and then he runs outside, and it's a on one side of the street. The other side of the street are the exact same buildings, like architecture, everything. But one is the first Presbyterian church, and the other one is the second Presbyterian church. So he goes to the right church, and um, he interrupts the wedding. One thing I did think was kind of funny is that the father's dubbing of his voice um continues you know like throughout the entire film i was like i was like that's kind of <laughs> it was kind of funny to yeah. me but again i was i was, was scrounging around on my hands and knees looking for a laugh here
0: yeah i got real sick of the fact that like it's funny when you do the parody of the graduate and then you're in the wrong place that's kind of a funny joke but then to do the same scene again in the right place he all they shouldn't have repeated the gag i guess is my point that you should have done your graduate bit, have that end in failure. The, the joke with the church, he runs across the, the street and you do a different scene. You have a different joke there.
1: But as we pointed out, Mike Myers is certainly not one beyond, uh, recycling something that's funny in another film. Maybe in this case, just the contractions got a little bit closer together, you know, he's just <laughs> yeah. kind of cranking that one out. So, uh, Cassandra runs off with, uh, Mike Myers, there's this Lemonheads cover of, of uh Mrs. Robinson. So it's high energy. And then we cut to Wayne Stock. People are getting anxious. Um Wayne and Cassandra show up and then people are getting unruly.
0: There's a pretty good like ADR of someone yelling, Eat me. <laughs> it's pretty good.
1: <laughs> that that I, you know what? That is funny. I didn't I didn't uh make note of that uh when I was going through it, but I do remember <laughs> that this because I watched this with uh I watched this with my son and I had to explain to him what that meant in a way that isn't what that means. Um, you know, like a banana kid. Wayne. <laughs> and then we, we kind of go into the same bullshit. Uh, multiple endings from Wayne's world. One Wayne, he, Wayne kind of screams out and he goes into that dream world, but this time Garth is with him. Who cares? It doesn't make sense. And uh, Jim Morrison says that their endeavor is a failure. So they, Tromp through the, the desert sands and then they die. And then they decide to do the Thelma and Louise ending. Um, which has been, you know, a couple of years before. And we see Wayne and Garth in drag going off a cliff and they're going to die. And then they decide to do the happy ending, which involves all of the band showing up, starting with Aerosmith. We see, uh, Rip Taylor in the crowd, you know, chunking confetti on everybody. And then Garth and, and female Garth, I guess they kind of sort of do the Lady and the Tramp thing with Twizzlers. Yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. kind of what they're doing? I mean,
0: fine. I, I mean, none of this is earned. It's not like we ever saw them have a moment together. Again, it's just <laughs> these two Raising cane twins saw each other and had the reverse Lithgow, uh, which is to be obsessed and in love with one another immediately, I, I suppose. The reverse Lithgow, by the way... Only try it if you've had at least two years of basic yoga.
1: (laughs) And a couple of of pieces of liquor. Uh Uh-huh. Get out of here!
0: That's how it starts.
1: Jim Morrison shows up in the the real world and tells Wayne that being adult means uh, being responsible and having fun. So, you know, this movie has a message for the kids. That's not what the theme of this movie was. That's the message you're getting, okay? That's the message.
0: (laughs) God damn it. If you're going to tell me what the point of the movie was (laughs) as you roll credits and ignore the fact that you you actually had scenes that progressed the idea of your theme, and then you decide in the last scene that wasn't the theme of your movie. That is the thing that pisses me off the most about this movie. That's the thing that pisses you off the most about this movie? It really does because it was so close to at least being consistent in that way of like, yeah, this is the story of Wayne understanding that lose or win the attempt to try something great is what's important. And instead, it's like, oh, no, it's just to hang out and have fun. It's like that was never the theme of this movie. (laughs) Also, that Cassandra really loves you. But but that was the theme of the last movie. Why can't Maybe that's the <sighs> No Man is an Island, you know?
1: I guess so. <laughs> so then a bunch of other artists start piling out of limos, like a I don't know, like a clown car or something, and, and the artists that, that just suddenly show up are Pearl Jam, I think, and then and then we just roll credits. I mean the movie just stops yeah. while Aerosmith sings some cut from the soundtrack of their new album. And then that's it. The movie is barely 90 minutes. We've talked about it longer than the length of the film actually is. And the movie's over. Or is it? Did you stick around for the stinger oh, scene?
0: Well, of course I did. Because we can't <laughs> leave out one more reference that nobody gives a shit about at this point. <laughs> you want to talk about Sure. This <laughs> All right. So it's after the concert. And we have our half-naked Indian that has been so talked about in the film looking at all the litter left behind. And we have him turn to camera and roll a tear, which is a reference to a commercial from like the late 70s, early 80s about littering in, in this country. And so we're making that joke. And then we cut over to Wayne and Garth, who say, hey, don't cry, bro. We're cleaning up. And sure enough, they've got the prisoner picks where they're stabbing Dixie cups and putting it in trash cans. And then he smiles. <laughs> and you're like, why don't you just go fuck yourself? Instead of doing all of that, if you could have just taken a break. I, c-
1: I think that they they uh, just captured an honest moment of the actor that played the Indian and him just reflecting on being in this film.
0: Right, like what <laughs> have I have I done good or harm <laughs> to the idea by, of native americans in this country by being in this film? <laughs> like I've got to bear that I think now.
1: Do you, do you think that uh I like to think that that Wayne uh, found his calling, you know, in a vocation in the field of, you know, trash collection. <laughs> at a recreational I park mean, or something maybe that's where he that's at
0: least something useful to society <laughs> right that's a noble profession S- somebody who gets up every day and helps his fellow man you know
1: Oh am i kidding he didn't do that you know they picked up like two or three pieces and then just like threw down the bag and the stick they
0: did out. it until he left that's when it stopped <laughs> is he gone fuck this
1: so that is Wayne's World 2. Um I again, if you haven't seen it, don't. Um if you did, I'm, again, I'm sorry. And I don't have any I don't have any any, any other parting thoughts it's, on it. It's one. a
0: real shitty like dumb multiplicity copy of of the original film. The original movie I think genuinely has a a, a real spirit to it and it, it doesn't age very well, but it, it's fine. And, and there are some good moments. Like that scene on the hood that we talked about with uh, the airplane scene. Um, that scene alone makes it a far better film because it's something that seems to have genuinely happened on camera. And nothing in this movie feels genuine or creative or are just thoughtful of just like, how do we make this good? You know, (laughs) what do we do to make a good comedy follow up to a, a, an already hit film? Like we've got the formula. We just need to tweak it a little bit and they couldn't decide if they were going to tweak it or follow it. And it became this Frankenstein monster of the two that completely falls apart upon even the slightest inspection.
1: I think that if they had used the original script idea that was noted in the, the introduction, you probably would have gotten a movie that was more in parallel to uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey compared to the original uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That you sort of take the same two characters, but you put them in a, a wildly different narrative and just do something that's you know completely different. It, it reminded me a little bit of uh, a Big Top Pee Wee. Compared to Pee-Wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. And those are, in my opinion, examples of maybe not movies that are that are as good as the original, but they're at least arguably different. And they're trying to do something that's creative with the source material. And in this case, it's just sort of, you know, this watered down, recycled, reheated, not very good movie.
0: Yeah, it's it's this movie is you know, two days in the fridge, refried beans. Uh, whereas the original is, is a tasty, tasty fajita.
1: I'm going to stop there. I don't think I could come up with a better analogy.
0: Man, well, I'm, you know, people, people <laughs> are fascinated by the interesting word use of its size structure.
1: So, uh, coming up in uh, episode two of this season, we are going to be, uh, taking a look at Superstar, the Molly Shannon uh, vehicle that features sister, Mary Catherine Gallagher, um, and also co-stars Will Ferrell. And, um, in my opinion, a pretty impressive supporting cast. I think this is, uh, uh, arguably a much better film than Wayne's World 2. And, uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to, to talking through that one. I, I, again, I, I've recently watched this movie a couple of times and I found it to be very charming and delightful. Uh, for those of you that uh, enjoy hearing us, Shit all over movies. I'm not sure that, so sure that that's going to happen as much, uh, next go round for me, but I'm really looking forward to, uh, to kind of talking through and seeing how, uh, Molly Shannon took this, uh, this popular character from Saturday Night Live and, uh, sort of fleshed out a story around her, um, for the big screen.
0: Yeah. Boy, a, a good movie would be a nice change of pace. Um, and, and hey, not for nothing directed by kid in the hall, Bruce McCullough.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of talented people that worked on that yeah. one. So uh join us next time and we will uh we'll continue this season of Live from New York. Uh this is Pick Six Movies. I'm Chad Cooper. I'm Bo Ransdell. And uh we will uh we'll see you soon. Thanks everybody.
0: Bye.